Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, and the only corner for today, I am your indefatigable, your ever vigilant, your burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And that means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas. Franzak. Hope you guys are doing all right this morning. I'm Fern. is not going to be able to join us. She's not feeling all that well. But nevertheless, we are still going to have a show, and that show is still going to be phenomenal. We're trying to get a few things straight this morning because there was a bit of weirdness, and um, we are missing some things. Oh, there it is. It was misnamed. I'm sorry. Okay, I found it. All right, so let's do this. Let's get it into the headlines um, to kick the show off. In the news, in COVID headlines, who would have thought that former U.S. President Donald Trump would convince thousands of people to get COVID vaccinations? Well, according to new data from the National Bureau of Economic Research, a 27-second YouTube ad ran more than 100,000 YouTube channels in the second half of 2021, along with major media platforms like Fox News, which convinced a sizable amount of folks to get the jab. Now, this shouldn't necessarily be shocking, right? You have a president that is extremely popular, and that president is going to have a megaphone of people who believe what that president is saying. This is no different than Obama. This is no different than, I guess, the idiots who listen to Joe Biden. Um, From the standpoint of influence, though, yes, influence matters. And this notion of what people say, what people do, and how that affect other people, it matters. If you have a president screaming that the election was stolen, it matters. If you have a president screaming that China is giving people coke, it matters. By the same token, if you have a president saying, get the jab, it matters. People get it. It matters. Influence is a real thing. In national news, after taking nearly 10% of Twitter stock, Elon Musk was asked by several Republicans and activists to restore the account of former U.S. President Donald Trump. After Tesla and SpaceX CEO repeatedly criticized the social media giant for his biased treatment of conservative voices, wasn't just conservative voices. And that's why, let let me go through it, because I don't think this is, yes, I like the fact that Musk is trying to change into a free speech zone. No, I don't like the idea of a billionaire jumping in in order to save America. Musk, a frequent tweeter with over 80 million followers, has repeatedly questioned Twitter commitment to free speech. Tuesday, he was officially appointed to the Twitter board of directors. Now, the stock that Elon Musk has is not necessarily a stock that would, under normal circumstances, allow him to, let's say, influence the company. However, this is Elon Musk. If I'm not mistaken, he's the richest man on the planet. And his vocal point and how loud he is on this issue, yeah, it gives him sway, in which case they added him to the board of directors. The question that everybody is asking is, what does this mean? What does this mean? Is Musk going to be a free speech advocate? Meaning, for Musk, this may be somewhat of an ideological position. And from the people who basically want Twitter to be more of a free speech platform, people applaud that. By the same token, think of what you're applauding. This is basically the death of free speech, the death of democracy, not a reinvigoration of it. You basically had the richest man on the planet, or the very least closest to it, with an ideological position. That's all it is. He is an ideological position. And that ideological position allows him to jump in and basically do that. First, how many of those will you get? And how many billionaires 
from the standpoint of an ideological position, it's going to be in your specific interests, whether that is free speech, whether that is notions of democracy that is not necessarily in their interest but cuts more so in our favor. If we are dependent and waiting on the billionaire class to save us, we are already screwed. That's kind of my issue with this. It's not that I don't like the fact that he is an ideological but yeah, but cuts in my favor in the sense of, yeah, I want Twitter to be more of a free speech platform. I don't like this idea of silencing. I think it's ridiculous that you got rid of the president of the United States. All of that's true. By the same token, <laughs> if we're dependent on this, we're, we're, we're already in trouble. Let's keep going. The New York Magazine reports leaders of Black Lives Matter movement received $6 million in donations to purchase a swanky house in Southern California. The more than 6,500 square feet mansion has more than half a million bedrooms, I'm sorry, half a dozen bedrooms and bathrooms, multiple fireplaces, a soundstage, pool, bungalow, and parking for more than 20 cars. BLM chapters around the country are now asking questions as to where their money is going. Look, just because you're black, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't be corrupt. And just because you have this movement and this BLM movement of doing X or Y with this idea of whatever the objectives you're trying to accomplish, doesn't mean that the people at the top can't necessarily find a way to advantage. Now, to be fair, I haven't necessarily going into the details of the story, but we have reported on this channel before on issues of corruption around um, this issue. Doesn't in any way denigrate the movement, doesn't in any way denigrate what the people are basically pushing for, especially the overwhelming majority of the people that are on the ground uh, that are trying to get those particular items accomplished politically. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that just because the movement is legit and just because those people have real wants that the people at the top or some people wouldn't be willing to take advantage of it. A swanky house. I suppose that those leaders are going to need a nice bungalow and, of course, a 20-car garage um, in order to defund the police. Um, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says the West is trying to sabotage negotiations between Russia and Ukraine by fueling the hype around the Bucha provocation. The top Russian official noted that the provocation in Bucha took place just as Ukraine rolled out possible peace suggestions, including those regarding Crimea. Mm, yes and no. Yes and no. It could be used as a pressure point, um, not necessarily in order to crash the negotiations. It could be used as a way of pressuring the negotiations that much more. Just depends on how you look at it. The Russian foreign ministry has slammed the United States over its interference into internal affairs of Pakistan, and it sought to back Prime Minister Imran Khan in a snap election scheduled to be held in three months. The Russian foreign ministry spokesperson says, quote, the United States decided to punish Imran Khan for disobedience. A group of deputies from the prime minister's party suddenly defected to the opposition and parliament immediately submitted the question of a vote of no confidence, unquote. That is not the beyond the realm of possibility. I mean, if you listen to the comments that were coming out of the opposition in Pakistan, oh, we love the United States. We love the United States and we want to be closer closer to the United States. I mean, look at look at us. Look at us. Here's a picture of us. We're, we're such good buddies. We're such good buddies. And the prime minister who's working with the Russians. Well, at the point at which the United at the point at which Ukraine or oh, Russia invaded Ukraine, um, Imran Khan was in Moscow, if I remember correctly. And the comments that have been coming out, yeah, he seems to be closer into the orbit of Russia. Now, if you're the United States, you have all sorts of influence in regards to, let's say, Pakistan parliament. You have various people in the parliament that knows that they will get a sweetheart deal. They will be able to suckle on the nipples of Joe Biden for all of the cash and lucrative military contracts that they can get. What would you do in that situation if you believe you could be advantaged by getting rid of the prime minister? That's the question, right? Well, 
that is going to be a question asked to the part uh, to Pakistan's population, who's basically going to have to go out and vote because after that no confidence vote, parliament was basically dissolved by the president. And so Imran Khan is going to be running and we're going to see what happens. But again, this is the world that we are currently in. It puts you in a mind of Cold War stuff, right? You have Russia backing a specific candidate and you have the United States backing the opposition. And at this very specific point, the question is, who is going to win out in regards to Pakistan and what direction is Pakistan ultimately going to end up? And for that matter, even the association between the Pakistan military and the United States is a question that Imran is probably going to have to grapple with. We're going to have Mike Malouf to come on. And Malouf, being a military guy, it should be an interesting question for him to answer, especially considering the association and the closest between the Pakistan military and the U.S. I could be wrong on that. Mike Malouf will correct me if I am. I don't think I am. Usually not. India's ambassador to the United Nations says there should be an independent investigation into the events in the Ukraine city of Bucha after Ukrainian government accused Russian troops of killing civilians there. The diplomat called the reports of civilian killings in the city quite disturbing. I agree there should be an independent investigation. I'm not sure who's going to do that. Any more than any independent investigations that were taking place in Iraq when the United States would go in and basically wipe out the place. Um, we'll see. We will see. The double or the hypocrisy around this, though, is pretty disturbing. And all things being equal, looking at the New York Times reporting of it, it just sounded like a war zone. Hey, there's a crater here. There's a, a bombshell there. There's a person that killed him. It's war. I don't mean to say that in a cavalier way, but it is war. How many civilians did the United States kill in those bombing campaigns? When those flying killer robots, when 70 or 90% of the people that were being killed were civilians in some of the reports that came out, nobody cared. Nobody cared. Yeah, I can be somewhat jaded on this stuff because I know, and I live in this country, and I was around as, you know, they were selling slaves in Libya as a result of the United States and the UK and France, and nobody cared. I was here as a rat, and a million Iraqis were killed, and nobody cared. I was here when Albright looked and said 500,000 kids dying in Iraq was acceptable. I was here for all that. And so, yeah, I can be somewhat jaded at the level of hypocrisy that is basically being issued and um, put out right now. I remember those, the, the killer squads that we were basically backing in South America. I was here for all that. And so now we see a situation where there's a horrific war zone that under no circumstances needed to take place. Meaning, listening to Zelensky, listening to um, Borrell coming out from the EU saying, hey, we made a mistake in regards to trying to offer and get Ukraine into NATO. Yeah, no, duh, you made a mistake. And now a lot of people are basically dying for it. And what you're trying to do is use propaganda to cover your culpability in all of this. Yeah, good luck with that. That will work on mainstream media that will not work with me. The aftermath of the slap continues. Netflix and Sony have put an upcoming project with Will Smith on hold after he slapped comedian Chris Rock at the 2022 Oscars. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Smith was due to star in the upcoming Netflix movie Fast and Loose, but sources told the outlet that the streaming giant set the project aside. Gotta be honest, can't say I blame him. Can't say I blame him. Do you really want to lose cannon on your set like that? Um, his issue is with Jada and with Jada having sex with other men. Your issue is not with Chris Rock. And transferring that over to Chris Rock is just pathetic. Deal with the situation with your wife and the guy who's diddling your wife. That's not an issue of Chris Rock. You're way beyond the pale on that. I'm not shocked at all. The Hubble Space Telescope has found the most distant individual star ever seen whose light needed 12.9 billion years to reach Earth. Wow, that's amazing. According to the European Space Agency, quote, the NASA ESA Hubble Satellite, or Hubble Space uh, Telescope, has established an extraordinarily new benchmark, detecting the light of a star that existed within the first billion years after the universe's birth of the, in the Big Bang, 
the most distant individual star ever seen. Think about that. Think about that. Light travels at what? Um, three point. Oh, geez, I can't remember, I believe I forgot that. 3.8 um, meters per second squared or something like that. Oh, 3.8 million meters per second squared. I need to look that up. Can't believe I forgot that number, but whatever. It took all of those billions of years to get here. Yeah, that's it. 300 meters per second squared. Um, which means every 300 meters it travels. Every second it travels 300 meters. I guess my point is this. Even at that fantastic speed, 300,000 meters per second um, or three oh, it takes billions of years for that light to go from point A traveling through the vastness of space to get here and more importantly imagine the power and scale of the thing that can basically project that photon that far for that long it's just an astonishing thing when you put it in context um, yeah it's rather shocking rather shocking and last headline for today, business news. After more than 125 years as one of sports' most iconic snacks, Cracker Jack is adding a new face to the roster with this introduction of Cracker Jill. Oh, jeez. To celebrate women who break barriers in sports, this in a statement by PepsiCo announced a new character from Frito-Lay. The company's quote, quote, tapping into the brand's rich history with America's favorite pastime, Cracker Jill, comes to life through five different representations on a series of special edition bags, which will be available at the start of the year's baseball season in professional ballparks across the country, and through donation of $5 or more to Women's Sports Foundation. Very interesting. In holiday news, we have National Siamese Cat Day. Okay. National Student Athlete Day. Okay. New Beers Eve. No idea what that is. Day of Hope. Always nice. And National Walking Day. Today in history, we have the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's been established in 1830. In 1896, we have the first modern Olympic Games in Athens, Greece. Uber interesting. In 1917, the United States officially enters the First World War, which were Wilson. And in 1968, the most iconic space film ever, a 2001 Space Odyssey is released in theaters. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franza. All right, that one hits my heart center a bit. 2001 Space Odyssey, when that film came out, people sat there and had one or two reactions. What the hell is this? One. Or, as one of the people who were viewing it stated, this will be the most iconic film in history on the issue of space. Why those two disparaging or two divergent reactions? When it starts off, it starts off with a monkeys, just a bunch of monkeys. And these monkeys get into a fight. Now, yes, people who came there came to watch a space film, Space Odyssey 2001. We're in space. You have people with their magnetic boots and everything else on. But the way it starts is people or monkeys on the ground. And the first time I watched that, I watched, what in the actual hell is this? Eventually, one monkey gets into a fight, picks up a bone, and beats the devil out of another monkey. The monkey throws the bone into the air, and the bone turns into a space station. And at that point, people are like, oh, my God, what just took place? What just took place? Such a hard break. It's a disturbing break in the way that things go. But the point that he was trying to get across and the point that he was trying to make is that that bone that the monkey slammed into the other monkey's head for whatever particular reason the monkey needed to do so was the first tool. And that first tool, hearkening just inexorably, one 
tiny step after the next, one poor step, one great step, one healthy step, one unhealthy step from the standpoint of the development and creation of various technologies for the human species, one step after the next, inexorably leading to that space station. Meaning the very use of that very specific tool was somewhat of an indication or step forward that was always on some level providing humanity didn't destroy itself was going to improve and expand us to the stars. No, the monkey didn't know that when the monkey beat the devil out of the other monkeys um, with that bone. Didn't matter if the monkey knew it or not. It was almost as if it was kismet, like it was cosmic almost, like it was just built into the process, not a bug, but very, uh, but very much a feature of humanity. Every incentive in the world pushes humanity to create and develop tools. Our lives can be somewhat difficult. You got to eat. You got to find things for shelter. You got to get heat. You got to do so and so and so. You can either sit there and suffer continuously, or you can find things to mitigate that damage. The mitigation of that is the technology. Now, we use it for cash. You can also use it to ameliorate the rough edges of the human experience and a human existence. And either way, from the standpoint of the movie, it was making that point that much clearer and somewhat of a weird, esoteric, but dead on way. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas and Franzak will be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I am typically joined with my lovely co-host, Farron Franzak. She's not feeling well today, but all things being equal, she will be back and we wish her well, um, this is typically the My Thought segment, and I am going to alter um, the monologue on this one because after having the conversation about Space Odyssey 2001, um, I may as well go into this one, and I'm going to wow out just for a moment. I'm going to retain myself or control myself, but I'm still going to wow out for a little bit, and this is going to be somewhat of a morbid uh, monologue, but the monologue is going to be on something that was basically released yesterday, and since my mindset is kind of focused around this notion of Ukraine and the war and everything else, all of these things will kind of merge together into somewhat of a morbid monologue, even though I suppose at the end it may be emancipatory. Um, yesterday, The Sun released 1,500 pages of documents from the ATIP project. I just read it. The report obtained by The Sun from the Defense Intelligence Agency as part of the huge Freedom of Information request investigates the health impact on humans who have had paranormal experiences. Now, again, this is not rando place releasing this. This is the Defense Intelligence Agency, and this was the stuff that they were basically studying under ATIP. Right here. The Pentagon has released 1,574 pages of real-life X-Files related to a secretive UFO program after a four-year battle. The Sun Online first requested a copy of all the files reported or video files related to Advanced Air, uh, Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program on December 18th, 2017. So when the program first came out, the Sun basically sends a massive freedom of information request to get information. It takes four years, and after the four years, they get this trove of data. And the stuff that is in it is mind-blowing that this is the stuff that they were basically studying. And they weren't studying it in this mindset of, okay, is it true? Uh, is UFOs? Not that. It's an accepted premise that they were basically going with. And some of the stuff is extremely exotic. Now, here's the thing. With any UFO content that you're going to get, and we've had Lou Elizondo on the show, we've had um, the other gentleman, Nick Pope, on the show, and we've been doing interviews with the various people who are in this field, the journalists and everything else. The reality of it is that what you're going to get is going to be 
a version of reality. It may not be actual reality. Meaning, as affable as Elizondo is, there is no way to independently confirm what is going on out there. It is a black box. It is a mystery box. And in the context of the mystery box, the public has basically ignored the fact that the mystery box has been added to their reality. Now, what do I mean by mystery box added to their reality? The moment that the defense or um, Office of Defense of National Intelligence comes out, Department of National Intelligence comes out with a bombshell report, and you have all of these other alphabet soup agencies signing on and says, yes, this report is legit. And in that report, it is making the point of there's technology. It is in our airspace. We don't entirely know what it is. We need to get rid of the giggle factor. We don't believe it's Russia and China, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As I said, it's a report that screams to the hilt for another report. And you're not going to get any individual person to come out and say, hey, they're aliens. You're not going to get that. What you will get is a report. You may get an investigation. You get another report. You may get a video. You may get something that was leaked. You may get that. Eventually, to get to the point where the public is accepting the narrative. It's going to be kind of like Mitt Romney. Romney comes out. Hey, it's interesting stuff. It's not China. It's not Russia. It's not us. I don't believe it's aliens. And it's like, dude, you've taken everything off the table. Has to be something, Mitt. Has to be something. You acknowledge that it's something. But I think that's where most people are. It is so big and expansive in regards to what is potentially in that box. Whatever's in that box is an alternate or at the very least a reality that is vastly different than what we believe it is. But we don't know what's in it. And the fact of the matter is the only thing that we're going to get is a version of the truth. And even from that standpoint, think about the way your politics goes now. Let's go with the Ukraine issue for the moment. Yes, we expand NATO. Yes, and in addition to expanding NATO, we knock over a Ukrainian government. Yes, we put in a puppet regime. Yes, we put in weapons and uh, munitions, and we try to pull those guys into NATO, despite the fact that all of these guys fully and understood, going back decades ago, that that was a red line. It is the reason why they said they wouldn't expand NATO. And yet, fast forward, None of them would acknowledge that. All of them would go with this line and basically use propaganda to assuage their culpability in this particular situation. If they are willing to do that for something like this, where you can corroborate that they are lying through their teeth about it, what about something that's in the black? What about something that's in the black? You have something that is entirely in the black, and there is no way to independently cooperate any of the information that is basically coming out from the various sources. So. What you end up with is a report here. This person said that. And what you most likely will get is a self-serving narrative that absolves multiple people of issues that they might have been engaged in and gives you a very specific narrative of events that will most likely be in line or to the benefit of the people who are basically giving you the narrative. Why would they do something else? If you look at the way they operate in the current world, why would they do something else? And yeah, that is somewhat morbid. That basically, this kind of external thing that's out there, we won't necessarily get the real picture of it. We will get a version of it. And that version can be contorted into any particular way, and there is no way for us to cooperate it one way or the other. Yes, that's somewhat dark. No, yes, that is somewhat morbid. Um, and yeah, being in the dark is not necessarily the greatest thing in the world. And yet, is there another way out? I mean, yeah, we have people like Avi Loeb, who's trying to do this from a private standpoint, but at the end of the day, we're basically stuck on some level with what? government sources come out with. In this very specific situation, the Freedom of Information Act from the Sun, some of these pages, I gotta be honest, are so explosive. So right here, I just read part of it. The report obtained by the Sun from the Defense Intelligence Agency as part of the huge Freedom of Information Act request investigates the health impacts on humans who have had paranormal experiences. All right, let's keep going. 
It says the report titled Anomalous Acute and Subacute Field Effects on Human and Biological Tissues Investigate Injuries to Human Observers by Anomalous Advanced Aerospace Systems. And the report prepared by the DIA warns that such objects may be, quote, a threat to the United States' interests, unquote. This is what they were studying. Humans have been found to have been injured from exposures to anomalous vehicles, especially airborne, and when in close proximity, it reads. The report noted that often these injuries are related to electromagnetic radiation and links them to energy-related propulsion systems. Again, think about what we're saying here. This report is studying, basically, how do UFOs affect human beings? But again, in order for the report to even exist, it has to accept as a premise that the UFO exists. And that this is not interdimensional fish. It's not swamp gas from space. They're talking about vehicles. They're talking about technology. Unless that technology manufactured itself out of nothingness, then we're also talking about an intelligence around it. This is what they were studying. Don't take my word for it. We had Lou Alexander here on the channel who basically even made the point about shutting down nuclear facilities. These guys know more than what they are saying. And as I said, they are hinting at it. They're giving you reports that imply it. And at the end of the day, this is what they were basically studying. Let's keep going. Sufficient incidents, accidents have been, quote, sufficient incidents and accidents have been accurately reported and medical data acquired to support a hypothesis that some advanced systems are already deployed and opaque to full U.S. understanding, the report reads. It goes on. The medical analysis will not, will, will not require the invention of an alternate biophysics to indicate, let's try this again. This is weird, weirdly. The medical analysis, I think this is supposed to say, will not require the invention of an alternate, or will require the alt, um, invention of an alternate biophysics to indicate, to use, to us, unconventional and advanced energy systems. The report added that it had 42 cases for medical fouls and 300 similar unpublished cases where humans had been injured by anomalous encounters. This is what we were studying. This is what they had buried. And this is what basically just came up in the X-File call in um, Paul. The study argued it was possible to use this medical information to reverse engineer UFOs from unknown province that may be a threat to the United States' interests. The report also featured, quote, a useful database, unquote, which listed the biological effects of UFO sightings on humans and their frequency compiled by U.S.-based civilian research organization MUFON. It included bizarre occurrences such as apparent abductions, unaccounted for pregnancies, sexual encounters, experience of telepathy, and perceived teleportation. Another fascinating document included in the file sets out how to categorize anomalous behavior with categories including ghosts, yetis, spirits, elves, etc., etc. Everything was on the table from their research standpoint. They also rated UFO sightings, flyby, close encounters, including CE4 with an incident with an alien result in permanent psychological injuries or, for that matter, death. In a statement bound to excite UFO hunters around the world, the report states, quote, Classified information exists that is highly pertinent to the subject of the study, and only a small part of the classified literature has been released. Unquote. Wow. Just wow. The report was part of a 1,500 pages of DIA documents related to the, um, to the Pentagon's secretive UFO program, Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, that was obtained by the Sun. Just wow. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, look, for the people who are in the UFO community, they're not shocked that the U.S. government was studying this stuff. They full well understood it. There was enough information out there to back that up. Now, as the stuff dribbles out, all sorts of questions are raised, right? 
You were lying about things in our sky. Well, what did you know about those things in our sky? We give you a trillion dollars a year, give or take. What do you mean you didn't understand what was in our airspace? What do you mean something shut down the nuclear weapons? What are you telling the president of the United States? How much research do you have on this very specific issue? Why weren't you telling the public that this was occurring? There's all sorts of questions that are um, dropped from this. And the moment that you acknowledge in that mystery box that there is, yeah, there's something there. We don't know what it is. We don't know if it was here prior. We don't know if it came here. Something there. Mystery box. If you've been lying all of these years about the UFO stuff, which it seems to be obvious at this point, what about the people who were talking about abductions? You got to deal with that, right? What about those people who were saying, hey, I encountered X or Y? You have to deal with that. It's not that I'm saying these people um, are being accurate in regards to specific in the way that they're talking about the reality. It's not that. It's more so that the fact that you have been lying, meaning the government has been lying for all of these years, smearing all of these pilots that have come out, all of these brave soldiers who are basically defending this country, all of those people who would come out and say, I saw X, I saw Y. David Fravor, flying to defend this country on 9-11, comes out and says, hey, I saw X and Y. The pilot that was in the sky with him, I saw X and Y. Both of us were looking at it together. The ship taking the data. Hey, we saw this on our mechanisms, meaning not only was a visual inspection for what David Braver was talking about, the ships around saw it. The other pilots in the sky saw it. And on some level, again, my point is, we acted as if this wasn't a legitimate thing. And because we spent decades acting as if this wasn't legitimate, what else don't we know? What else are they keeping to themselves? And how on earth could information like this come out, not to mention the videos, and not get the president to comment and respond directly to the American public on what is going on. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas Bronzak. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined typically with my co-host, Vern Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to get to our next guest. We're going to have a conversation on the events that are basically taking place on the ground, at the very least reporting, um, in Ukraine. There's no way we can get around it. Um, there have been all sorts of reports. Of course, the Bucha thing has caused people to basically scream in panics of shock um, and awe, um, despite the fact the level of hypocrisy that involved in that level of screaming on this issue. And again, frankly, we don't know entirely what took place. The New York Times article that went on it makes the point that we don't necessarily know what basically took place. And I would say their screaming headlines belied the fact that buried in that, they make it clear. But they have a conversation about the military issues that are basically on the ground. Um, there seems to be a repositioning towards the Donbass region where the main fight apparently is going to take place. Kiev seemed to be somewhat of a faint. Maripol seems to be on the brink of collapse. And the Ukrainian government has started to offer various concessions on this notion of we won't have foreign troops on our soil without Russia permission. We will be non-aligned. We won't join NATO, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Stuff that Russia was asking them to own up to in the beginning. But that said, to have a conversation about the events that are taking place on the ground, we're joined with Michael Maloof. Michael Maloof is a former senior security policy analyst in the Office of Secretary of Defense author and regular contributing analyst on RT and other media outlets. He has nearly 30 years of federal service in the Department of Defense. Michael, what's going on, my man? How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Jamaro. How are you? So far, so good. Better that you are with us. 
Um, and I definitely wanted to get into the events that are taking place on the ground. The U.S. media has been hyperventilating um, on all sorts of stuff and not wanting to own up to the fact that Russia seems to be accomplishing its objectives, at the very least in the sense of the main thing about Mariupol, basically creating a land bridge to the Crimea and securing the issues of the Donbass. What is your take on this? I mean, the, the forces do seem to be repositioning. I mean, Kiev was never the point. We kept saying it on the show. Kiev was never the point. Their goal is not to sack the capital. Their goal is to have a feint in order to keep those troops pinned around the capital while they basically secure and destroy the military that is in the east. What is your take on the events that have been taking place on the ground currently up to this point? What's your point of view? Well, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I think the um, strategy, there is a strategy. You can see it. And it's, I don't think the intention ever was to just take over the country. Uh, t- uh, tactically, strategically, uh, Russia wouldn't be able to manage that given the insurrection that would occur over the years uh, if that took place. I think uh, combined with the concessions that um, the um, that, that Zelensky is, is uh, offering now and the fact that um, Donbass is the uh, area that continues to be bombarded, frankly, that's the area where Moscow is, is focusing and they want to create a land bridge that will go to uh, Crimea. That seems to be the territorial uh, goal that they're, that they're seeking. Uh, and, and the forces are being realigned uh, for that purpose, and it's very clear. They clearly saw that they couldn't take Kiev, so, uh, but what's more important strategically, and, and it would be that land bridge, and also to protect uh, the Donbass region uh, against, um, against uh, Ukrainian forces and the Azov Battalion, which is part of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. Uh, and they're the ones who are really, uh, it seems, leading the, uh, the, the effort to, uh, uh, on these attacks, and they've been doing so for the past eight years. So um, I think that these, uh, this is the reality on the ground right now, and, that, and there's going to be a, and the way that forces are being positioned, it, uh, <clears throat> coming up from uh, Mariupol and, and coming down from the north, it's, going, it, there's, it's conceivable that a number of the uh, Ukrainian forces could be uh, encircled. Well, it seems like that's what's taking place. I mean, at the very least in the Donbass region, it seems that they're running out of fuel supplies, bullets. I mean, that was their main military, basically. Oh, please. Well, there's a pit, there's a pincer movement that's underway right now. It seems, and from from reports that I've seen, and uh, if they don't uh, uh, move back uh, westward, they're they're, they're going to be pinned down. So they've got uh, they've got choices to make, and um, and I think and it's happening gradually. So it's going to be something that uh, that, that gives them an opportunity to withdraw and uh, do do what they need to do to uh, save themselves. But uh, clearly, the, the, the strategy is clear. It, I don't think it was meant to take over the country. It was certainly meant to create a buffer, uh, a, a neutral, more neutral country, uh, and to prevent uh, it from becoming a NATO member. Well, just by its occupation, it really couldn't have become a NATO member. However, the fact that NATO forces are continue, had been upgrading their maneuvers and everything else with Ukraine, uh, it's so facto it was, it was a partner, uh, it became a partner of uh, NATO, and that was considered to be a potential... Uh, a red line, yeah. I mean, and like I said, whether it was de facto or whether it was in fact, was almost irrelevant to the point. 
I mean, if you basically organize a country and you just don't call it NATO, you can call it whatever you want. You can say, hey, this is a Scooby-Doo organization. Yeah, but if they're basically full of weapons and everything else and they have their associations, it's the same thing. I want to get to somewhat a larger question on, let's say, Europe architecture going forward. Yeah. Because what it seems to be is if this is somewhat of a reorganization or reevaluation in regards to this kind of security architecture of Europe, where whatever deal Ukraine comes up with going forward, that would be this kind of, I guess you could say, line between East and West. Um, and not just line between East and West, even setting, I guess, the rule set going forward. I mean, if Ukraine is, has to make an agreement where they're basically a non-aligned nation and that they're, non, that they're basically neutral and they're independent and you can have weapons and everything else, well, that's the new line. The new line where these guys are basically established. Um, and tell me if I'm wrong on that. I mean, is that the way that the West is looking at it? The reason why they're putting so much weapons and willing to basically shoot themselves in the face in regards to sanctions and deal with this kind of darkening economic picture across the globe? I mean, Janet Yellen is going to come out today and basically say that the war is creating a downturn where recession is somewhat of a real possibility in the United States. That's a no duh. But basically, this is not just the U.S. Europe is going to take it worse. The New York Times comes out. Europe is going to be poorer and colder for years. And so you have to ask, like, why are they willing to go that far for this? And I think it has something to do with whatever the architecture is going to be between the East and the West going forward. It's being decided now. And all of them on some level know it. But tell me if I'm wrong. No, in effect, you're not wrong. I think what is occurring here is an evolution toward a toward a split between East and West, a definitive split, uh, and the difference between two world orders that are emerging. The United States, which tried to be dominant and, and prevail in the world, uh, actually helped create the very thing they, they're trying to avoid. Yes. Is this uh, alternative world order and, and merging Moscow with uh, Beijing, even though Beijing had some trepidations about what occurred, yet nonetheless, the, there is so much going on right now toward uh, that uh, uh, alliance and, and, and togetherness uh, that, that, in effect, you're having a multipolar world order emerging, and the West sees a threat as a consequence. And, and also to its, uh, oh, the, do, the dollar dominance is beginning to uh, fade a little bit now. We're seeing that more and more. We've seen it now with the Saudis wanting to do Petro Juan rather than Petro dollars. Uh, so it, the, the sides are beginning to take place. You're seeing a realignment. And I wouldn't doubt that you might begin to see the beginning of the end of the EU because a number of those countries are looking eastward as well, because they really haven't benefited that much from the West. And um, already you have Italy, which is a member of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a a uh, Chinese-sponsored economic enterprise. And 136 nations belong to it. And now you have India, which has decided, or seems to have decided, to uh, side with uh, Russia and, uh, and, and China, which in which they, too, have uh, issues, but not so much that they can't uh, work together under the auspices of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. I'm curious. Has that surprised you? Like, I mean, because to me, at a certain look, for me, you have to know how far you can push the situation, meaning whatever you have at your disposal, there are going to be consequences and ramifications for you using those activities, which is the reason why soft power, in some respects, is kind of better and easier to use as less ramifications. If we're going to use the dollar in such a way where we use it as a weapon, if we're going to steal reserves from other banks, 
Like that stuff has consequences when other nations are looking at it saying, whoa, they can go that far on a whim. And even this idea of this kind of indispensability where you have that in your head when you're engaging other nations. So you're not dealing with China and say, let's compromise because in your head, we are better than you. When you're dealing with Russia, it's not compromise. We're better than you. This wasn't the case during the Soviet Union. I mean, that seems to be a level of respect that is no longer there in the way that the U.S. engages. And so we need Saudi Arabia. They don't pick up. We need OPEC. They don't do it. We try to browbeat India into a joint. They don't do it. India goes so far as to say we may even sign up the rupees, rubles. Like it seems to be this kind of changing of the world order. uh, And it feels like it happened overnight. But clearly, it's not something that is happening overnight. It's just very weird. What, what, what are your take? Well, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I've been saying this for the last two to three years uh, on the air with RT and, and even with you all. And it, we just saw it emerging. We saw it coming. And it just took Ukraine to be a spark. That's why, you, that's why this issue, issue is not about Ukraine by itself. It's a much greater issue that, that uh, is worldwide now. And it, it, and, it, and it involves a strategic realignment of the world that we're seeing uh, combined with economic. It's a hybrid type of thing of, of political, economic and military uh, realignments that are that are now occurring. And it's happening. Uh, and, and, and the pace is picking up now. We're beginning to see it accelerate. And, you know, we, we the fact that we're in Syria illegally. We're stealing their oil because that is a means of revenue gain for the United States, because up until now, all uh, transactions in oil worldwide had to be done in dollars. That is now going to be changing. and uh, It's going to have an impact ultimately on the U.S. quality of life in the United States in the, in the next few years. Hide and watch, because this is... Uh, if we lose that, and that's been uh, notwithstanding the debt that we have in, have uh, uh, embraced and spent, uh, that is going to be the fact that we're going to be losing those petrodollars uh, is is going to have a, a, a very great uh, impact upon our uh, way of life in the United States. Agreed. And because I don't think it's very strange for me, for the media not to acknowledge that, meaning they would talk about the war. They would talk about inflation. But they don't necessarily put together this level of culpability of the U.S., meaning from your standpoint, <clears throat> we had a guest on yesterday who tried to argue that NATO was love and light and that NATO was Europe's way of, of welcoming Russia in as a normal country. And it's like, are you insane? I mean, we're trying to make like making a point to the guy that if NATO was love and light, then why did they say it wouldn't expand when the Soviet Union fell? Meaning all of them, all of them, every last one of them understood the significance that this was a hostile military organization and that the idea of it expanding was a threat to Russia. All of them got it. I mean, and tell me if I'm wrong on this. This is something that they knew even when the Soviet Union basically fell with those assurances, we won't move an inch to the east. Well, why would they make those assurances? No, they didn't write them down. It's irrelevant that they wrote them down, though. I mean, at the end of the day, it was fully understood that this was an organization that was hostile to Russian interests. And these notions of encirclement or getting to the border were basically a fail. I mean, that's, When I look at this issue, I look at it through that lens. And to me, it's like, this never had to happen. Never had to happen. I agree with you. And and I also agree with you that uh, this indivisibility that you're referring to was written down in the OECE charter and and a number of other agreements. And even in discussions where there were 
where there were uh, documents now being unveiled in the British archives that revealed that there was agreement that NATO would not uh, proceed eastward. And so it, it's, uh, and we went against all of those agreements. So you can understand the position of Mr. Putin that if NATO is encroaching, um, and I hate what, what the outcome was because I, I still think we could have had more discussion. But I, I, and I, even though I work for the Defense Department, I don't particularly care for war. I've been involved in two of them. And I, but there's no, uh, but the, the, the West saw what they were doing. They were pushing, pushing, pushing. And he, he, he warned over the years against the, this red line, and it was ignored. And uh, Stoltenberg is one of the other uh, uh, people who, 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 who's involved in this, uh, in, in pushing this narrative. And you'll, you'll notice that right after the fall of uh, Afghanistan and our, and our uh, evacuation out of uh, Afghanistan. Immediately, Lloyd Austin heads for Georgia, uh, and 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 then to and then to Ukraine. Like, well, we we screwed this part of the world up. Now let's go screw up another part of the world, and that's precisely what happened. We started increasing uh, maneuvers in in the Black Sea. Like, we we just we just can't help ourselves in trying to in, in military aggrandizement, and this is something that has just got to stop. Explain something to me. I. In my conception of the world, the U.S. looks at the world in zero-sum terms. And what I mean by that is it's we win, you lose. And this kind of grand chessboard where it's like you have all of these countries. Some countries have spheres of influence. Some of these countries with spheres of influence are your allies, other countries that aren't. And the goal and objective seems to be this kind of full-spectrum dominance. Is this the military doctrine that you were working with when you were in? Or, I mean, am I missing something? Because it does seem that this is the way the world works. That, you know, there is no such thing as international law that basically you have stronger countries that do what they will and the other countries just kind of accept it. And when those things happen, depending upon whether the country is an ally or an enemy, you either back it or not. That seems to be the way the world works. None, you know, this rules-based order, I don't know what they're talking about. It's a doctrine espoused by the neoconservatives in this country, whether you're Republican or Democrat. I happen to work under a, a number of neocons in the Defense Department at the time. And their notion was to make Iraq a hub for the rest of the Middle East, and they were going to use that hub to take down uh, Damascus, then Tehran, and then Saudi Arabia at the time, and, and Libya. So this, this is something that uh, uh, th this doctrine of, of pushing the military, the, the American democracy through the military, if necessary, is their dogma, and they have not ceased, and we're now seeing the the results of that, and it's 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 disastrous, and it's going to uh, eat us up, and and uh, we're increasingly isolating ourselves as a consequence, and we didn't have to go this route. We could have gone another route and actually worked with Russia and China, and sure be economic competitors, but work with them on a number of things because we still have a very serious terrorism threat in the world, and they feel it as we do, and yet we we want. Where our, our our sweet spot, it seems, is this uh, uh, confrontation at at uh, at strategic levels, and that's where our our military and our uh, and our intelligence seem to be uh, most comfortable with, and and it's it's uh, and it's it's very dangerous, and we're seeing that now, especially with this talk of the use of tactical nukes first time. But when you look at Mr. Putin having been sandwiched in 
and, and contained as the West sought to do as part of its policy, and that was its policy, it, then, then Moscow really has uh, no other choice because it, it, it gets criticized even for doing maneuvers within its own country. At, at some point, you've got to say, what, what, when does this stop? And how do you stop it? The whole idea is that they do not want, the West does not, and particularly the United States, does not want uh, Russia uh, to exist as it does today with this government. And, and I think if, if uh, you left it up to Victoria Newland, she would love nothing better than to have a coup within the Kremlin right now. Exactly. And to me, what Biden articulated when he gave a speech was just policy. I, I, uh, man, they tried to walk that back. Blinken tried to walk that back. I would argue that from the standpoint of what Putin looks at, that's just policy of the U.S. I would imagine he accepts it. I mean, the U.S. really needs to get out of his own head for a moment and look at how it's being perceived externally, because that's something that the media and everything else doesn't look at. If you're looking outside of us, you see, OK, they knocked over one government after the next in the Middle East. And they justified each of those as they did it. You know, these humanitarian bombs. And so the fact that they were selling slaves in Libya, yeah, that doesn't matter. We're going to co- we're going to cover that. The million um, people that died in Iraq, going to cover that. And so you get to this thing where you're seeing government after government after government fall. You see the same thing take place in South America, uh, where government after government falls, especially with those banana republics and the stuff we were doing back there in the 60s and 70s. And so you look at the East or the, the, um, the West, and you see one former state after the next end up as part of NATO, 13 nations. And then you see Ukraine, where Victoria Nuland is choosing, you know, clearly backed by the U.S., who is going to be in power, basically putting in a puppet government. If you're looking at that, that is disconcerting to you. I don't, meaning, I don't know how they take this weird response that the Cuban Missile Crisis was entirely legit, meaning we were willing to end the world to prevent those weapons from going to Cuba. And yet they would argue, hey, Ukraine is an independent state. It could do whatever it wanted. Hey, Cuba was an independent state. It could do whatever it wanted too. We didn't take that perspective there. It's, it's just aggravating, that's all. Like this, this inability to acknowledge the other side of an argument is very a- aggravating. But Scott, I mean, but, um, Mike, I want to move. To, oh, please, if, if you want to comment on that. Are you suggesting we're, we're, we're hypocritical? Yeah, we're being hypocrites. That's my, <laughs> that's my point. And it's like dealing with a media environment that entirely ignores that. It's very aggravating, that's all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to jump to Pakistan for a moment, because with your military experience, I definitely wanted to get your take on this. So Imran Khan is basically saying the U.S. is trying to throw me out in a soft coup. And look, I'm not in Pakistan. I don't necessarily know, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility right here. Speaking, this is his opposition. Speaking at a security conference in Islamabad, the army chief, General Kumar Javed Bagwa, said that Pakistan hoped to expand and deepen its ties with countries, including the United States. A sharp rebuke to Mr. Khan's foreign policy agenda, distancing Pakistan from the United States. General Bagwa said Pakistan, quote, shares a long history of excellent and strategic relationship with the United States, unquote, adding that the U.S. represents Pakistan's largest export market. And then he also said he referred to the invasion of Ukraine as unfortunate and that despite legitimate security concerns of Russia, its aggression against a smaller country cannot be condoned. Now, this is him trying to dance between the raindrops, right? A, he wants Imran Khan gone. B, he wants to gain some level of political power. And C, he wants to be able to create the relationships with the United States and with Russia. Whereas Imran Khan seemed to be very straightforward with Moscow. I mean, at the point where the invasion took place again, I think he was in Moscow. Is this a soft coup or not? What is going on here? And could you discuss the military relationship between Pakistan and the United States, which if I understand correctly, is pretty deep. 
What are your thoughts? Yeah, the uh, that that relationship for years has been very very deep, and uh, and uh, we and the ISI, which is uh, the uh, creation of uh, the uh, the intelligence service, we the U.S. CIA worked very very closely with them, and um, and that relationship has been there for years now. Khan is a is a an independent guy. He uh, and as a consequence, his leanings tend to be more eastward than westward, and uh, and and the military, of course, likes all that Western hardware and all that uh, technology, and uh, never mind the influences. They're getting what they want, and uh, but but uh, Khan Khan's uh, interests lie more with Russia and with China, and there therein lies the conflict. And that's that. It's going to be uh, perpetual unless you can get someone in office that uh, uh, through a coup, uh, unless voted uh, in, that will uh, shift more westward. But I just don't see it. Uh, China is too much uh, uh, involved and uh, in, invested in in Pakistan today that that will uh, to to to, uh, to in order to prevent that and that was the whole idea because china has its uh, its uh, aspirations as well and and pakistan is is a key in that uh, in that effort so um, uh, and to date uh, he khan has been successful in having the uh, having uh, the support i presume of most of the military but uh, that could change at any time, but right right now, I think Khan Khan's politically weak right now, and this could be a vulnerability in which the military might might attempt to coup, and that's something you cannot rule out. Interesting, very interesting. I mean, because he's calling for parliamentary elections, or the president has basically called parliamentary elections. And I guess my thing is, what is explain for a moment how the military and political system in Pakistan. Because if I'm understanding, it's not like the U.S. All of this stuff is under civilian control in the U.S. But is Pakistan's military independent of the political system or is it under the political system? Explain that for me. It's technically under the political system, but at, at the same time, you have a, a, you, you have a military uh, leadership that has its own uh, interests. And it's just like our CIA has its own interests apart from what the the government policy might be, and we've seen that manifested uh, many times in the past. And it, it, and just like the CIA, a, and if, if you have the military on your side, you can stage that coup. Now we don't in in the U.S. We there there isn't that kind of an arrangement. Uh, the CIA certainly cannot launch a coup and and sustain it, but whoever controls the military can, and there have been. Uh, cases of of a coup, and I think Bhutto uh, and, um, uh, and and a number of other past military leaders who came to power did just that through through uh, through a coup and a military coup. Uh, it it can easily happen again. We have not had that, and uh, we don't have that uh, experience in the United States. But Pakistan certainly has had it just within the uh, 20th century alone. So it's. Uh, and and now uh, we, we're into the 21st, and it's been relatively quiet. And to be clear, this is a nuclear power nation, so this is not just any country. I mean, this is significant if there is anything. Meaning, if there's political havoc in Pakistan, that's a big deal for the world. Um, at that point, depending on who's going to take power. Oh yeah, and the United States has something, some say in in the guardianship of that nuclear stockpile that they have. By the way, 
uh, for years we had um, uh, they they consulted with the U.S. Uh, on on how to uh, maintain it, how to how to maintain safety uh, capabilities around it, so it wouldn't be used uh, irresponsibly. So uh, we have a vested interest in what happens, and if if a country is uh, if a leadership is going to go wayward, then it's to the U.S. CIA interest to stage help stage a soft coup to keep that country in alignment with the U.S. And given that the military leadership within Pakistan right now tends to lean much more toward the U.S. than than toward Moscow or uh, or uh, China, look out. <laughs> very interesting. So what do you? Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, that that raises all sorts of questions in regards to whether or not he's going to be able to retain power, and even this kind of pressure that is taking place between East and West as Moscow and as China clearly will back Imran whereas other elements in the country will be leaning to the U.S. Very interesting. And you can see those pressure points um, that are there. Mike, I really appreciate this conversation, man. And thank you for the short notice um, coming on. Um, the voice that you guys were listening to is Mike Maloof. He's a former senior security policy analyst in the Office of Secretary of Defense, author and regular contributing analyst on RT and other media outlets. He has nearly 30 years of federal service in the U.S. Department of Defense. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas. Bronzak, back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And that means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. So I want to thank all of you. I really appreciate Mike Maloof. Um, these military conversations, these are dark, dark conversations. And yet, I suppose they need to be had. Um, we are, at the very least, perched at the wall, looking into the darkness. And we bring that back to you with some level of context and explanation of your world. But let's do this. Let's get into headlines. In the news, in COVID, who would have thought that former U.S. President Donald Trump would convince thousands of people to get COVID vaccinations? I would have, because I believe influence is a real thing. Well, according to new data from the National Bureau of Economic Research, a 27-second YouTube ad ran on more than 100,000 YouTube channels in the second half of October 21, along with major media platforms like Fox News, convinced a sizable amount of folks to get the jab. Of course! No, duh! It's Donald Trump. He has a megaphone. They're going to be all sorts of... Look, people often believe that the decisions and the things that they're making are coming entirely from themselves. Nonsense. Oftentimes, there's an emotional experience that kind of pushes their intellect in a particular direction where their intellect thinks they made a choice. In the case of influence peddling, People, let's say like Donald Trump, people like Obama, there are going to be a sizable number of people that listen and take in that stuff without a filter on it because they believe what the individual is saying. They hear Donald Trump say it, and in their heads, hey, maybe I should get the jab. They're less hostile to it as opposed to hearing Donald Trump say something, let's say, in the negative, and they become more hostile to it. In their heads, they're making a choice. In reality, they're being pushed one way or the other. I mean, it's called influence. It's just the way it looks. Look at Bill Cosby, for example. And I mean, Bill Cosby before the 40 rape women over the course of all those years. I'm talking about as he was doing The Cosby Show. What happened? You had all of these African-Americans that saw the example of an 
African-American doctor with an African-American lawyer and this awesome family of kids. And Lou used that as a model in their heads in going to Spelman and going to some of the other African-American colleges. You had a huge uptick in the number of people who were going to those schools as a result of the program. It is influence. That influence can go positive or that influence can go negative. It's just influence. I guess my point is no duh. Of course, if Trump pushes it, it's going to get um, um, escalated. In national news, after taking nearly 10% of Twitter stock, Elon Musk was asked by several Republicans and activists to restore the account of former U.S. President Donald Trump. After Tesla and SpaceX CEO repeatedly criticized social media giant for his biased treatment of conservative voices. It wasn't just conservatives. Musk, a frequent tweet tweeter with over 80 million followers, has repeatedly questioned Twitter's commitment to free speech. Tuesday, he was officially appointed to Twitter's board of directors. Let's put a pin in that one because I want to come back to that. Because that is not, that is not a success of free speech. That is an indication that is already dead. If you're dependent upon a, a billionaire to protect your free speech, then you never had it. The New York Magazine reports leaders of Black Lives Matter movement secretly used six million of donations to purchase a swanky house in Southern California, more than 6,500 square feet mansion, has more than half a dozen bedrooms and bathrooms, multiple fireplaces, you know, people get cold, a soundstage, a pool, a bungalow, and a parking lot for more than 20 cars. BLM chapters around the country are now asking questions as to where on earth is their money going? It should be obvious at this point. I mean, after all, there are a 20-car garage. There's a bungalow, dozens of bedrooms, even a soundstage, because at 2 in the morning, sometimes you need to just rock out um, when you're doing your BLM stuff saying, defund the police. Yeah, that's unfortunate. We've covered stories on BLM um, before, especially in the way that the money was basically used in some of the cases. Again, that does not in any way denigrate what people are trying to get accomplished. That doesn't denigrate their protests, them going out, them trying to push for this kind of social function. None of that stuff changes. None of that stuff is denigrated by corrupt people at the top. And yet, just because the movement is legit, and just because you have millions of people that actually believe it and push for it, doesn't mean that the various people in it can't take those others for granted and basically advantage themselves from those people's wants. Um, in this case, that's what seems like it's taking place. The Russian foreign ministry has slammed the United States over its interference in internal affairs, unquote, of Pakistan as it sought to back Prime Minister Imran Khan in a snap election schedule to be held in three months. The Russian foreign ministry spokesperson said, quote, the United States decided to punish Imran Khan for disobedience. A group of deputies from the prime minister's party suddenly defected to the opposition and parliament immediately submitted the question of a vote of no confidence, unquote. Hard to say they're entirely wrong, even though it's unclear. I mean, at the very least, the various people in the government took advantage of the fact that he, let's say, did that um, and definitely gave vocal assurances that they wanted to be in the U.S. orbit. Take it for what it's worth. India's ambassador to the United Nations said there should be an independent investigation into the events of the Ukrainian city of Bucha after the Ukrainian government accused Russian troops of killing civilians there. The diplomat called the reports of civilian killings in the city quite disturbing. Here's the other point. By blowing up what is potentially taking place in Bucha and immediately declaring that Russia was responsible, despite Russia's um, argument to the contrary. And my point is, it's a war zone. We don't necessarily know what happened, but the West is basically running with it. Okay, fair enough. They were going to run with anything that they could get their hands on. Part of this also has to do with many of the other countries around the world that are not part of NATO not buying the West's take. Meaning, 
India not being a part of this, the BRIC nations not necessarily being a part of this, more than half of the globe basically not being with the U.S. and EU. How do you ramp up pressure, not just get many of those countries further involved in, or for that matter, increase the level of sanctions that is going to hurt themselves in putting out those sanctions, and for that matter, trying to get other countries like India to join in, in the condemnation? Hey, a war crime would do it. Look, that's why I'm very skeptical about the claims coming out, even though I acknowledge I have no idea what's true. Let's keep going. In pop culture, the aftermath of the slap, slap heard around the world continues. Netflix and Sony have put upcoming projects with Will Smith on hold after he slapped comedian Chris Rock at the 2022 Oscars. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Smith was due to star in an upcoming Netflix movie, quote, fast and loose, unquote, but source of the outlet that the streaming giant set the project aside. Obvious as to why, right? <laughs> you basically assaulted somebody, and now they got to bring a loose cannon onto the set. It doesn't necessarily look all that good um, if you are basically abusive in such a way. As I said before in the first break, your issue is with your wife and the guy diddling your wife. And that that energy, that, that masculine energy that is typically there, that is being basically blunted, um, was basically pushed in the direction of Chris Rock. Chris Rock is not your issue. The guy that's having sex with your wife is. Let's keep going. The Hubble Space Telescope has found most distant individual star ever seen whose light needed 12.9 billion years to reach Earth. According to the European Space Agency, quote, the NASA ESA Hubble Space Telescope has established an extraordinary new benchmark detecting light of a star that existed within the first billion years after the universe's birth of the Big Bang, the most individual or distant individual star ever seen. 3.8 meters per second squared. That's how long of the speed of light. Am I saying that right? 3.8 meters. Uh, uh, I'm saying that wrong. 300,000 um, meters per second. That's how long or how fast light goes. It took 12.9 billion years. Imagine the scale and the size of an object necessary to project light that far where it is going, still going at 12.9 billion years, where we, in our humble corner of the galaxy, can pick that up and say, oh my God, we just found a photon from a star that was in the beginnings of the Big Bang. Yeah, I get enamored by this stuff. This stuff is phenomenal. I think that's where a lot of our attention should be, as opposed to spending trillion dollars killing people. Here's another one. In business news, after more than 125 years as the sport's most iconic snack, Cracker Jack is adding a new face to his roster with the introduction of Cracker Jill. Still slightly racist. To celebrate the women who broke down barriers in sports. This in a statement by PepsiCo, announcing the new character from Frito-Lay, the company says, quote, Tapping into the brand's rich history with America's favorite pastime, Cracker Jill comes to life through five different representations on a series of special edition bags, which will be available at the start of the year's baseball season in professional ballparks across the country, and through a donation of five bucks or more to the Women's Sports Foundation, unquote. Gotta be honest, I don't hate this. I, I, I tend to be reflexively against some of this stuff just because of all of the woke stuff that they've been forcing onto the public. Even in Star Trek, which I still am very bitter that they have been doing so, um, specifically Discovery looking at you. By the same token, a broad stroke is not necessarily everything included. And in this very specific instance, it makes all the sense in the world, right? You have Cracker Jack. Cracker Jack has been around for a while. Cracker Jill seems to be as natural as natural can be. Let's keep it moving. In sports news, or crazy story for today, it is a Guinness Book of World Records 
a Texas 70-year-old boy was dubbed the youngest professional mariachi singer by Guinness World Records. Seven-year-old Mateo Lopez got his start singing with the mariachi bands at local restaurants when he was four years old, and his skills have since led to an appearance on Mexico's Got Talent and Little Big Shots. Parents Alberto and Janelle Lopez took their son to Milan, Italy in February and did not tell him until arriving that the purpose of the trip was to receive his Guinness World Record certificate. Guinness said the boy officially earned the record at the age of four years old. Just because you... All right, you know what? I'm not going to be that way. I'm not going to be that guy. I mean, look, just because... Okay, I am going to be that guy. Just because your kid, you're, you're a rug rat. I'm not a big fan of kids. Just because you're a rug rat gets up there and sings X or Y doesn't make them a singer. And on some level undermines what it means to be a singer and a mariachi singer at that. Our family reunions would have parents forcibly pushing their kids up to sing this and that. And those parents acting as if those kids are great singers. Oftentimes, usually, 100% of the time, they're not. Oh, look how cute Johnny is. Oftentimes, Johnny is not all that cute. At the end of the day, fair enough. You want to give him a mariachi, an award? Fair enough. Is what it is. Um, you're not going to get me applauding this. A four-year-old singing something does not necessarily make him a singer. It is just a four-year-old singing something. There's a difference in those things. In the holiday news, we have National Sammy's Cat Day, National Student Athlete Day, National Beers Eve Day, Day of Hope. I love that. Hope, so expansive. National Walking Day. And then today in history, in 1830, the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints was established. In 1869, I'm sorry, 1896, the first modern Olympic Games in Athens, Greece took place. In 1917, the United States, under Woodrow Wilson, officially enters the First World War. Just think, we were a nation that was skeptical of these kind of global foreign escapades. Not anymore. In 1968, the most iconic film in the history of films, especially in the sci-fi section, Space Odyssey 2001, is released in theaters to audiences that are shocked not knowing what to think of it, or in other cases, in absolute and complete emancipatory awe. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franza. I want to do one thing before going into the next segment. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Now, I agree with my co-host on this, believe it or not, up to a point. And I, be- I agree with her in the sense that, because she did the monologue on this yesterday, basically this idea that Elon Musk coming in and is has an ideological stance towards free speech. And does this mean that when he gets into Twitter as a board or or chair, that he's going to try to take action to make Twitter more of a free speech zone? Now, the reality of it is, that is good in the individual, very specific sense of the term. Meaning, the fact that this billionaire has an ideological framing that he wants more free speech to take place. Now, what does that mean in his eyes? I have no idea. But let's just go with it. He goes on to Twitter. And a company that basically have been limiting speech, have been eliminating various voices and the, basically a tool of U.S. interests, that this now, at the very least, many people hope he's taking them in a direction where they will be far more open to allowing various points of view. That's the hope. That's the want. But understand, we are putting our eggs in the basket of a billionaire. And if it indeed requires a billionaire to ensure the sanctity of free speech, then we have already lost it. I hate to tell you this, the whims of billionaires can go either way. You have people like Bloomberg, you have people like Jeff Bezos. What do they do? They buy newspapers because buying a newspaper allows them to get their narrative, their story out, and for that matter, creates a disincentive 
and people doing stories on them from that particular newspaper. Elon Musk decides to go to Twitter, which is basically social media. And in the sense of social media, you have stories that can take this kind of viral appeal in the way that it gets out to the masses and people see it and everything else. Twitter famously refused to post the New York Post article on Hunter Biden's laptop. They did that just before the election in order to protect Joe Biden. This social media, this little engine that could social media company had larger ramifications from the standpoint of the election. What happens if Twitter lets that true and legitimate story that all of them acknowledge is true? What happens if that story comes out? How many people look at that story and take the same tact and point of view that they took towards Hillary Clinton when the email stuff came out or when the Comey stuff came out or when she came out running under a federal criminal investigation? I guess the point that I'm making here is this is not a minor thing. It's very possible that it had major domestic political consequences in regards to getting one person elected over the other based on the narrative that was hidden from the public. Elon Musk get doing this. It's not minor. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. The other point, however, I'm trying to make from a meta level is that if we are entirely dependent on the whims and ideological position of billionaires to determine and to protect free speech, we have already lost it. Elon Musk could drop dead tomorrow. His whims could change in a heartbeat. And all things been equal, if it is something that is going against his own personal best interests, his whims can change. We need something more, something stronger, something built into the fabric of this society in and of itself that makes it extremely clear that this idea of picking and choosing on a platform should not in any way be allowed. And whatever the laws, whatever the legal ramifications or the legal architecture that needs to take place to ensure that these social media companies, which have become our commons at this point, are not used for these kind of, okay, we don't like this conservative voice. We don't like this Pakistan voice. We don't like this um, voice from Telesur. We don't like this voice from New York Post because, you know, it hurts the president and we need that particular president to win. That should not, in any circumstances, be allowed by these social media companies. And the idea that they're a private company, nonsense. All private companies have things that they need to deal with from the standpoint of laws. I've made this argument years ago. This idea that you can't just say, I'm not going to serve an African-American a piece of cake because that person is black. I'm not going to serve that person because that person is gay. Or for that matter, having capabilities where handicapped people can reach your store. If you open the door to a store, there's certain federal regulations and rules that you have to apply by. That should be no different from the standpoint of social media, who is basically when they turn on the lights and when Twitter comes on, they're basically opening the door to a store in the same way that the stores do so in physical matter reality. Just because they're in the electronic space doesn't make it any different. My point is that Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of these companies, if they're going to be abide by this platform thing, that needs to be solidified and, it, and made very clear on what is allowed and what is not. And up to this point, these guys have just been using these platforms as a tool for their own political whims. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Bronzak, we're going to come back with the one and only Elijah McGay. He's going to give us this idea and we're going to have a conversation on what is taking place in Bucha and the news and the reporting that comes out. Elijah McGay has been a war reporter. He's definitely the person to talk to about it. Fault lines, Thomas Bronzak, back in a moment. Fault lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm typically joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, 
You can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are listening anywhere, I'm sorry. If you guys, oh, I'm sorry. Somebody, jeez. We have new people. I'm sorry. And the script has basically been changed on the fly. But look, you guys can find us on faultlines.com slash rumble. Whatever platform you're digging, um, listening to this content on, you can reach us online on the phone, 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. But let's do this. Let's get to our guests. Um, We can have a conversation about the changing of the script um, uh, later. But we are joined with Elijah McGay. He is a veteran war correspondent with 35 years of experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at E-J-M-A-L-R-A-I and find his reporting on his website, ElijahJM.wordpress.com. Elijah, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing this morning? Hello. Thank you for having me again. I'm fine. Thank you. No, we always enjoy having you on the show. Um, there's been a huge amount of conversation around this issue of Bucha. And when you read the New York Times, they're screaming headlines, but when you get actually into the reporting on it, they make it clear we don't necessarily know what happened. And to make it even that much more clear, right here, it says the cause of death are unclear. Some of the bodies were beside what appears to be impact craters. Other were near abandoned cars. Three of the bodies lay near beside bicycles. Some have their hands bound behind their backs with white cloth. The bodies are scattered over more than a half a mile on Yablonska Street. Now, to me, this sounds like a war zone. I mean, the craters and everything else, it sounds like a war zone. As for this argument, the Russian position is that basically we left, the Ukrainian security forces come in, and then all of a sudden we hear all of these claims about arms tied and everything else. And if you're dealing with Nazis, from my standpoint, and people who are basically have a hatred from their standpoint, it seems existential. Is it possible that these guys would do, let's say, commit somewhat of a massacre or at the very least stage one in order to try to get Western support further involved? maybe to try to get NATO nations to get militarily involved, something that they've up to this point decided not to do. To try to get countries like India, let's say Saudi Arabia, some of these other countries that haven't necessarily joined in on condemning Russia to do so. Meaning, from the standpoint of what is in the best interest of the various people on the ground, especially if they consider the issue existential, would this be somewhat of a hoax? That's a Russian position. Now, from my standpoint, I have no idea. I'm not on the ground. You've been a war reporter. What is your take on this? How do you view all of this issue with Bucha and the reporting on it that has been coming out of the West? Well, there are several issues here. First of all, we've seen bodies from the photos, the pictures, and the videos provided by the Ukrainian leadership. So we have one side providing with those pictures. Of course, there are bodies in the street. Now, when we see bodies in the street, it's very Uh, shocking immediately to see if these bodies have been decomposed or they are freshly killed. I mean, we're talking about one day or two, depending on the smell, depending on the position of the body, depending on many other factors. Now, before jumping into any conclusions, when we're talking about a war crime of this level and this size, First of all, we need to define, do we know the time of the death? Do we know the identity of these people? The circumstances they've been killed, removed from uh, the location, or they've been killed in the same location. And then we look at identification, like in many bodies that we've seen in the picture, the white ribbon on their arm that indicate that are pro-Russian. 
not all of them, but some of them. And then we look at facts when we see the uh, mayor of uh, Bucha, the uh, mayor Anatoly Fedorov, who said that it's a glorious day because the Russian left on the 30th and he was talking on the 31st in front of the municipality. And then it can't be a glorious day when the citizens of your city are lying on the ground. But then we see other pictures of special forces investigating the streets, going from one area to another, looking for um, uh, car bombs or uh, explosive, hidden explosive, or remnant of forces or uh, collaborators with the Russians. This is what we've heard from the Ukrainian side. And then we hear the New York Times uh, journalist in the city on the second uh, of the month, and we don't hear about the war crime. All that makes us really uh, suspicious about what's going on. If we add that to the demonization of Russia, if we add that to the public opinion that was shaped in a way to swallow any anti-Russia information and not looking for the truth, because if it is pro or anti, if it is with or against Russia or with or against Ukraine, people have the right to know the truth. But we need to know the real truth, not the customized truth and the one that's wrapped for us to us swallow as it is. And then the moment we say we need a forensic team on the ground to verify that, we are extremely and harshly attacked on our persona like we're not allowed to say it. Well, I'm sorry, we're going to say it again and again and again. We don't take at face value anything that Twitter or Facebook uh, is offering us. And then we can accuse a country like Russia of being responsible of war crime just a few days before we saw the videos of presidents, uh, Russian presidents of war killed, assassinated, with cold blood after they're captured, and then uh, some of them were crippled with bullets, uh, bullets in their legs, uh, and then uh, um, executed later on. And then suddenly all the attention is diverted somewhere else, and then we see the international community on one side is divided between the Western community and then the rest of the world. The Western community going down the line that is following the U.S. pattern that wants to uh, crucify Russia for whatever excuse it is. And then we have the international community waiting to see if this is going to end and how long and to where the West is going to push a nuclear country like Russia to the limit when it is going to say, well, I have the right to defend it myself. Are we looking for a third world war? Are we looking for a nuclear war? Are we looking for further provocation? Or are we looking to understand the truth and de-escalate and stop this madness that is honestly fully manipulated, particularly on social media, to push people to think in one direction and one direction only? Do you think that they're going to be able to have any kind of independent investigation? And by the way, thank you for that. that uh, contextual, makes all the sense in the world. Um, you know, 
it, not this kind of howler monkey screaming, despite the fact that there's been no investigation on it. And even this kind of downplaying of the incentives that are built into the process that would incentivize other groups not name Russia or not name Moscow to do something like this. I mean, it's amazing that they are basically whitewashing this. Do you think that there's any potential to have an independent investigation of events on the ground? <clears throat> to tell you honestly, I was expecting a fake chemical attack and to accuse Russia of a chemical attack because the, all the scenarios started a week before say, warning Russia from a chemical attack. And that's we have, it's, it's really a deja vu in Syria when uh, France, the UK, and the United States launched 59 Tomahawk against the, Russia, the Syrian army uh, in Syria when there was a fake uh, report about... OPCW. That's right. Yes. And then that was resulted in an official report Emitted part of this official report. So, no, we cannot hope uh, of having an independent investigation. We can uh, hope that the people stop going into that line, and then any crime against humanity should be investigated, but should be investigated by an independent body. Unfortunately, the, we're talking about United Nations body. There is no role of, of the United Nations since decades. All the occupation of countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya uh, have been done without the United Nations approval to occupy these countries. So there is no role for the United Nations to work here. And I remember the very important speech by President Vladimir Putin in the Munich uh, Summit of Security, when he said, let us activate the United Nations. Let us give it a role because it's an international body. And if you want to go to the International Criminal Court, it is not recognized by the US. It is not also not recognized by Russia. So who is going to investigate? Is it uh, President uh, Vladimir Zelensky? Well, he's been acting as a comedian since the beginning of the war not looking after the interest, the best interest of his own people and continuing the war as long as the West is supplying it with weapons to kill more Ukrainians. I think it's time for this man to understand that this war is only made to last long, not to defeat Russia. It's just to last as long as possible. And just to back up your point on this, not only is the U.S. not a signatory to the Hague, we passed the Hague Invasion Act. And basically a new law protecting U.S. service members from the International Criminal Court. And you have to ask yourself, why would the United States need to pass a law to basically attack the U.S. criminal, uh, the ICC, if they decide to pick up one of our soldiers? Well, this has to do with Iraq. U.S. President George Bush today signed into law the American Service Member Protection Act of 2002, which is intended to intimidate countries that ratify the treaty for the International Criminal Court. The new law authorizes the use of military force to liberate any American or citizen of the U.S. allied country being held by the court, which is located in The Hague. Think about that. The court that is designed to ensure that war crimes and everything else gets investigated. We have a law basically attacking that court. It's astonishing. Um, Elijah, thank you for this, man. I really appreciate you joining us uh, this morning. The voice that you guys are listening to is Elijah McNeigh. He's a veteran war correspondent with 35 years experience in Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at E-J-M-A-L-R-A-I and follow his reporting on his website, ElijahJM.wordpress.com. 
great, great guy, especially from the standpoint of his level of experience. He's always great to have on. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I am typically joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. She's not feeling well. Hopefully, she could be back and join us tomorrow. However, joining us currently is A.J. Delgado. He's an American columnist who formerly worked for Mediate. She joined Donald Trump's presidential campaign in 2016. She's a Harvard Law graduate who practiced law in New York City. Her writings have been published in the American Conservative, National Review, the Miami Herald, the Washington Post, Breitbart, the Daily Caller, and Fox News. Welcome to the show, AJ Delgado. AJ, thank you for joining us. How are you doing this morning? Great. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for joining us. I want to get into this conversation of Section 230. And of course, this bursts to the scene because Elon Musk is taking a stake. I think it's around 10% stake in Twitter. And what the hope is that Elon Musk is going to, he's been very critical of Twitter from the standpoint of free speech because Twitter under no circumstances, is a free speech zone. I mean, the New York Post was probably the most egregious aspect of it. I mean, and that depends on whether you think Donald Trump was even more egregious, meaning getting rid of him, or for that matter, getting rid of Alex Jones. Either way you look at it, though, Twitter has been very, let's say, specific in getting rid of certain content that it didn't particularly like. I mean, there was one case about somebody making a joke. I think it was um, Babylon B making a joke that, yeah, might have been, tasteless. By the same token, should they be eliminated off the platform because of it? And again, I point back to the New York Post stuff that was on some level used to protect Joe Biden and issues of corruption associated with Biden Inc. um, in the way that they were basically willing to stop the New York Post from publishing his articles about the laptop that now everybody else agrees is real and that the FBI is looking at as a potentially prosecute um, Hunter Biden. What is your take on this? How are they able to do this using Section 230? Because it doesn't sound like they're abiding by that. It sounds like they're picking and choosing winners as opposed to being just a platform for anybody to put their information on. What are your thoughts on this? And then we can get to the legalities around it. Yeah, so the legalities around it are incredibly complicated, and you'll never find someone that will give you a straight answer just because this is very um, new territory for us. For the world, really, you know, is Twitter a private company or has it merged really into a town square where everyone should have the ability to speak their mind, so on and so on. As a conservative, I have to say I've always leaned in the direction of Twitter as a private company, and I would say this about any private company. They have a right to kick you off for whatever reason they want, as long as their terms and conditions didn't violate the contract they set up with me, in which case I could civilly sue them. But they have a right to kick me off the platform if they don't like my, my, my profile picture. Uh, so they do have that right legally. The question is, should they be doing it? Is there a moral obligation? Is there an obligation as a member of society, even a corporation as a member of our society, to do what they have been doing? And I think everyone agrees at this point that they have gone overboard, be it removing Donald Trump from the platform, which at first I was on the fence about, and now it's become incredibly apparent that it was rather crazy. This was a man who was the president of the United States, who's probably going to be the 2024 Republican candidate, and he's not allowed to speak on the platform because they claimed he was inciting violence, which is extremely arguable whether he was or wasn't. You have Tucker Carlson. Um, He's been locked out of his account for a week now because he made a reference to a transgender uh, member of the Biden administration that Twitter deemed 
improper. Now, are 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 those statements things we we like? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he shouldn't have said those things. But should he be allowed to say those things? I would say yes. So, from a moral standpoint, should Twitter be doing these things? No. Wait, wait, AJ. Moral? Well, morality doesn't necessarily account. And we were talking about where a business does X or Y. Meaning, if you're taking this argument that this is a moral issue, then Twitter can do whatever it wants. Then them getting rid of Trump was just proper. Them blocking out Tucker Carlson was proper. Them getting rid of Balaban B under that context was proper because Twitter can do whatever they want under this notion that they're a private company. I guess my thing is, is there a legal rationale around them not doing this? And for me, this is Section 230. This is where, because for me, them being a private company doesn't matter. In the same way that, you know, you can't say, I'm not going to serve you um, because you're African-American or I'm not going to bake this cake because you're gay. Companies, even private companies, have certain laws and rules that they have to abide by. And in the context of a social media company, okay, maybe they don't have to abide by the First Amendment, but this agreement that they get where they're not held liable for certain things, providing they're acting as a platform, to me, that does sound as if that's a point in which the argument can be made, hey, maybe you shouldn't get rid of Trump under that guidelines. Or, hey, maybe you shouldn't lock up Tucker Carlson or get rid of the battle of Meaning, is this a legal issue, not necessarily a moral issue? Because I got to be honest, if it's a moral issue, I don't think we have an argument one way or the other. Well, even if it's not a moral issue, you can make the argument based on the need for a free marketplace of ideas. We can put societal pressure on Twitter of, hey, go ahead and allow people to say things that you find objectionable and let these ideas be beaten in the marketplace of ideas. They have a right to say what they wish. And I do think that societal pressure, especially maybe with Elon Musk on the board, who's a big free speech advocate, will win out in the end. Legally, there is an avenue, but I think it would take a long time to eventually argue that these apps are like town squares and to ban someone from speaking is essentially wrong. But again, since it's not a government actor, that route is incredibly shaky to take. Let, let me ask you this. Should there be a legal right around this? Meaning, should there be, meaning, should the First Amendment be, let's say, augmented or altered to include social media in some way. And maybe First Amendment is not the way to go with it. But is there some kind of legal edifice that should be created with this kind of recognition that these companies are now the new town square? These are commons in a weird way, even though they might be owned by somebody else. Um, on some level, it is almost required um, for us to be able to, like you said, put our point of view in the marketplace of ideas and have those points of view be back and forth. I mean, to get across the gravity of it, the New York Post or Twitter didn't block the New York Post story just because it was a New York Post story, they blocked it because they believed it would have hurt Joe Biden. That's kind of what I'm getting at here. This stuff has larger significance. Should there be laws around it that are strengthened, whether that's a beefing up of 230 and making it that much more clear and clarified? I mean, what can be done to deal with this? I, I think legally it's so difficult because you're always going to have to cap, you know, carve out an exception to what you just said. Say, well, for instance, if, if a person goes on Twitter um, and shares photos of his ex-girlfriend who dumped him. And that uh, could be something that we would want to support Twitter banning that person. There are always going to be situations where we say, oh, no, but that person, it would be okay to ban. And we don't consider that to fall under free speech. And that's where it becomes really messy. So I just think, although legally, I hear your argument. I, I do think these apps are becoming town squares. And I do think it's insane that the Hunter Biden story, because it was labeled misinformation, even, what, even if it hadn't turned out to be misinformation, let them say, let the New York Post say whatever they're going to say. And if it's a bad claim, people will refute it online. Let the ideas flow. 
But you're going to run up against that instance where you do have to ban people, and everyone does agree that some people should be banned. So I just think the quicker remedy is to place societal pressure to keep having segments like the one you're having where you point out the inconsistencies in Twitter's application and then place that societal pressure on them, including moral pressure, to say, hey, these are arbitrary decisions you're making. They're usually politically motivated. And it's time to stop. And I do think that will work faster and be more effective. Okay, we, we're, we're going to see that in real time, I suppose, with Elon Musk being part of it. Do you, what effect do you think he's going to have on that? I think that's the question that everybody is basically asking. What effect is Elon Musk going to have? And even whether or not they should bring back Donald Trump. I'm on this point of saying, yeah, they should. I'm a lefty. By the same token, I didn't think the president should be removed. I thought it was a ridiculous move, removing the president um, from it when he has this kind of bully pulpit platforms and everything else. But... A, do you think Trump is going to be brought back? And B, what effect do you think Elon Musk is basically going to have on Twitter as being part of the board? I do think Trump will be brought back just because it would be downright insane to keep what is almost certainly going to be the 2024 GOP presidential candidate off of Twitter, which is the number one app when it comes to discussing political issues and having political conversations and the media being on there, et cetera. So you are going to have to allow him back on Twitter. As for Elon, I do think this will be a net positive effect, even though he's not a majority stakeholder, but he's certainly the the largest stakeholder. And he's certainly an advocate of free speech, and he certainly doesn't back down from a fight, and he has a big mouth. I appreciate that and like that about him. (laughs) So I do think he's going to push and have the kind of points you were just making. I do hear those points being made in a board meeting. And how much Twitter will push back and and more so, how much was Twitter even certain of the notion of banning Donald Trump? I remember when it happened, it seemed there was a lot of wishy-washiness of are we doing the right thing? Rightly so. Even Jack seemed a little bit reluctant and then ultimately gave in to, to the mob at the time calling for it. But I see Trump coming back and I do see Elon as a positive. I don't know if banned accounts will be reinstated. Because of Elon, I don't see that happening. But I do think the platform will ease off of this, like, 2020 rush, this, like, mob swell that we saw of, like, anyone who's spreading anything we deem misinformation, banned, silenced, sent to your room. It, it got crazy. It was like a a, a a tsunami of just people get caught up in the moment, and there were just accounts being banned left and right. A tsunami of hysteria. Donald Trump just just kind of um, for arguably spreading violence. And you look up the tweet and it's like, yeah, you know, even some, some Democrat friends I had were like, oh, I don't know. I think they, they might have gone overboard a little bit. That's an overboard is an understatement. I mean, like, look at where they are now. I, I, I don't think people get the entire gravity of this and what it means for this notion of democracy where it becomes so common to, I don't like what you said, so I'm going to get rid of it. Now, mind you, you can block the person, you can eliminate the person, but that's not enough. We need you removed from the platform. I mean, the joke that the Babylon Bee gave, for example, or even they blocked a joke. I don't think it was a joke. It was the commentary that was made. They were talking about trans athletes. And the people who were there basically made the point of saying, look, swimming with um, the male that transitioned into a female and then became a swim athlete it was like we felt some kind of way about that <laughs> because we felt that it was an unfair competition. They blocked that person. They got they like Twitter wouldn't even allow them to make their point about this is what we felt about this particular situation as if your feelings are no longer valid in this because they're going against a, a precious or prized minority group that we're basically trying to defend. It was very weird. Like all of that stuff is very weird. It, so I feel you on that. It's, it's magnificently gone too far. 
Um, and I guess the question becomes, what do you do? And I got to be honest, I don't think public pressure is going to be enough. But please, I'm sorry. No, and I was going to say, I'm, I'm very supportive of the, of the LGBT community and even the transgender community, as I'm sure you are. But when thousand percent. like that, I just think, okay, I disagree with that. And I move on with my day. What I don't understand is why the, the appropriate reaction has, not, has now become not, I disagree with you, best wishes, we'll agree to disagree, and I must silence you. Yeah is now the appropriate, you know, I come, my family, they're Cuban exiles. And I grew up um, hearing stories of you did not, if you did not fall in line with the proper thought and say the proper things, you were silenced, you were beaten. And I really have this sinking feeling in my stomach that that's, I don't know if we'll get there, but that's the trajectory that we are on. If you don't hold the proper views, you need to not just be um, debated or or humiliated by being debated to a pulp. You need to be silenced because your idea, just your very speaking it, is dangerous. And think about it. The First Amendment is first for a reason, right? There are going to be times where people have points of view that fly in the face of the larger overwhelming power structure. And those people with those points of view that are in a minority need to be defended because sometimes those points of view are right. And necessary for that particular society. And that has been entirely and completely ignored, especially from the standpoint of social media, where it's almost like you have this layer over top of the ability for the individual to speak. And by having this layer over top of that, you now have the ability to shut those people up and just remove those people in a similar way that they would have done in some of these other um, governments that didn't necessarily allow the ability to speak. It is very creepy. It is not necessarily something that is to the betterment of any type of democracy. How do you have a democracy without people having the ability to make their points? It's just very, like, just on the premise alone is problematic. Um, there's something else that, that came out that's really interesting. 63 Republicans have voted, or I'll just read it, um, right here. More than 60 Republicans on Tuesday voted against a resolution expressing support for NATO and calling on President Joe Biden to strengthen the organization's commitment to defending democracy. The revolution introduced by Representative Gerald O'Connolly, a Democrat from Virginia, was backed by a majority of the GOP caucus and every Democrat who voted, citing the threat posed by authoritarian regimes as well as internal pressures from proponents of illiberalism. The resolution calls on the Biden administration to uphold NATO's founding democratic principles. I love that. It also advocates the creation of a Center for Democratic Resilience within NATO's headquarters in Brussels, within the center providing member states assistance to strengthen their own democratic institutions. No idea what that means. But from the standpoint of the Republicans voting against it, I do think that is very interesting. I've, I've thought that there's been a seemingly a contingent of the right that has been very skeptical of these foreign escapades. And some of that has presented itself in people like Tucker Carlson, who's basically saying, hey, do we really need to have a conflict with Russia right now, especially if inflation is going to go through the roof, especially if Europe is going to end up in a recession and Janet Yellen is going to come out today and basically tell us that we're risking a recession. However, we're still going to keep digging the ditch of sanctions. So what is going on in the Republican Party? They seem to be far more skeptical of this kind of Cold War stuff than it is on the Democratic side. What are your thoughts on this? Or am I even wrong? Or am I even correct on that, by the way? Right. So it is encouraging that we're seeing this rift in the GOP, which, you know, back in the Bush years obviously did not exist. Have to credit Trump for that because that strain of anti-interventionism and skepticism about foreign globe trotting and inserting ourselves into other world affairs that always existed. You know, you see, for instance, folks like Pat Buchanan, but it was a tiny minority. And when Trump came along, who does believe in those principles, 
he made that America first. There is no need to make enemies. There is no need to inject ourselves into fights that aren't ours. The mainstream. So that, and you're seeing that effect now when you see some Republicans, a significant amount, be Matt Gates or others, saying, no, 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 that's not our fight over there. And no, we don't need to start a nuclear world war, possibly, over what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. And we need to think about America. And had it not been for Trump, um, I don't think you would see any of that because he made that palatable for the GOP and explained it. And people, when, people understood it. People understood that we do need to put American ideas first. And we don't know what's going on over there. And we shouldn't be injecting ourselves, especially if it causes blowback here at home. And we're already seeing it with even higher gas prices. We're going to see more inflation because of these sanctions, et cetera. Why not just stick to our business? What is wrong with that? A thousand percent agree. To see that some still some have have seen the light in the GOP, thankfully. And that's a positive thing. I mean, like I've I've even questioned myself on whether or not Trump was the better option. Now, I didn't vote for either Biden or Trump. Um, and I didn't even vote for Biden at first. Um, uh, uh, I was a Sanders person um, straight through and through. And for me, I didn't necessarily see the point of supporting somebody who wasn't going to support my interests, in this case, Biden. And so him getting in office, I got to be honest, I didn't realize how bad he was going to be, though. Like, shockingly so, especially on this issue of foreign policy. I mean, like I said, Janet Yellen in the New York Times wrote the, the, the New York Times wrote the piece basically saying, OK, Europe is going to be poorer and colder for several years going forward. All of this, the geopolitical escapades, right? Nobody said NATO had to expand. All of a sudden, Zelensky is now accepting the premise that was basically given in the beginning of all this. This didn't have to happen. And you have Yellen basically saying the United States is basically potentially heading for a recession. However, we're going to keep going. So the fact that Trump is basically saying America first, we don't need to be part of these foreign escapades. He's skeptical of conflict and war. And even when he was doing this kind of brinksmanship, I mean, North Korea was a thing where he was actually getting closer to coming to some kind of deal with. No, he did horrible with the Iran stuff. But even with that, the level of brinksmanship that was there, he didn't necessarily go to war when other presidents might have actually taken that extra step of doing so. And so Biden comes in, ruins the issue with North Korea. So North Korea is firing off missiles. Inflation is going through the roof with this kind of risking of a global recession. And these guys are basically digging the ditch that much further and escalating this kind of conflict, this kind of separation of the global market and everything else. I guess my thing is, was Trump the better option on this? And do you think Trump would have handled this differently? Maybe that's the question to ask. Yeah, you know, it's impossible to know in in hindsight, had Trump been elected, how this Mm Ukraine-Russia matter would have played out. Part of me, you know, I I, I wonder if he would have been able to have a a, a better level of outreach, um, even with both sides, and that this could have been prevented and there would have been no conflict, uh, you know, going forward. There was already a conflict going back eight years. Exactly have escalated to the level it did. It's impossible to know, but I do know he would have probably used more diplomacy because that's his, his thing. Of, I get along with Putin. I get along with Kim Jong-un. So would diplomacy have worked? Possibly, if not probably, but you know, that's neither here nor there at this point. At this point, the question is, what is wrong with looking out this approach and looking out for you know, the mom and dad are they're just trying to get by and money to take their kids to Target? on the weekend, and you're telling them, I'm sorry, for Ukraine, a country you can't even spot on the map and have never even really thought about and doesn't really affect our well-being, you need to pay higher gas prices. Or food prices. take home pay 3000 a month. 1000 percent correct. Prices. I feel it every day at the grocery store. I'm shocked. 
every day. Everything is higher. The stickers keep changing. So and why, especially in a conflict where, can you honestly tell me which side is in the right? I don't even know. You've been fighting for so long. There are atrocities on both sides. There's accusations being leveled on both sides. Ukraine is no angel. Um, so why should we suffer for Zelensky, who could have, I'm sorry, avoided this with a simple guarantee concerning NATO, which Ukraine was never going to join anyway. And instead, we're seeing bodies and carnage and death and destruction on both sides that I truly believe could have been avoided had he been more reasonable. And I think the problem is he was banking on the fact that big bad America will come to my side and fight for me. And thankfully, at least somewhat, thanks to some level heads, including in the GOP, he's had a rude awakening. Hopefully it sticks, but big bad America is not coming to your aid. At least I hope not. And you're going to have to work this out yourself and seek a truth. That's what I'm for a truth and a negotiation because it's not our fight. Voice of God. <laughs> like just rational common sense, right? Um, especially from the standpoint of what is in the best interest of America. I'm curious, do you think that the media has gotten to the point where they're trying to get rid of Biden? Now, the reason I'm asking this, there was Obama came back to the White House yesterday. Tucker Carlson played this and I thought this was the funniest thing ever. And you remember Jeb Bush had that moment where he's like, they're kicking me out the door. They're kicking me out the door. It was so embarrassing. Jeb Bush was supposed to be the presidential guy. And he got no respect, basically. So Obama comes back and the star quality is back in the White House. And it is clear that the star quality is back in the White House with video of Joe Biden wandering around with nobody talking to him. And Obama is there. Everybody is huddled around Obama. Obama is doing magic. He's looking like the president again. And Biden is just kind of wandering around like an old man lost in a retirement home looking for his relatives. And people, nobody's talking to him. And he eventually puts his hand, oh, Barack, Barack. Nobody's paying attention to Joe Biden. To be fair, Obama's such a superstar that if you had like Tom Brady in the same room with him, yeah. everybody would ignore Tom Brady. Right, <laughs> right. But it's like Biden is the president, right? And so listen to this. This is the media. And the media has started to harp more on Hunter Biden's laptop, which is shocking because up to this point, they wouldn't touch it. You've had New York Times, Washington Post coming out with articles on that stuff. And you even have liberal mainstream media that threw their body on the fire to protect Joe Biden in the election and everything else. They're saying stuff like this. Let's play the clip. President Biden, the outlook is pretty grim. War abroad, anxiety at home, and inflation at its highest level in 40 years. Sky-high inflation is erasing bigger paychecks. While hourly earnings are up 5.6% over last year, nearly one in five workers says they run out of money before they get their next check. You have historic inflation. You have record gas prices. Americans are feeling it. Biden's numbers have dropped by double digits with young voters, and they were a big part of his coalition in 2020. Voter anxiety is about more than rising prices or Russia's war in Ukraine. Violent crime in American cities remains persistently high, and there is a growing problem at the border. President Biden's approval rating still hasn't found bottom, and it's been slowly trending down all year. Yeah, and they even have a clip of AOC coming out basically making a point of saying, yeah, the youth doesn't, you know, they're not for Biden like this. This looks bad. Um, what is your take on this? Is it just everything else has been going wrong, so Biden is considered a liability in this case? Is he just become fair game now for some reason? Or are they smelling the handwriting on the wall? And I know that sounds weird, smelling the handwriting on the wall. But are they seeing the handwriting on the wall that, look, this looks like it's going to be a disaster in the midterms? And is Biden even going to run within the next few years, considering it seems like he's already been in office for four years? It feels like such a long time has passed. 
What is your take on this? What's what's the reason or rationale for the change? Yeah, so I think they are seeing, there's no denying the approval ratings are in the toilet. And there's no denying that, unlike what some Democrats will tell you, this um, inflation is not temporary. So the approval ratings, because people base those ratings based on what actually affects them, and that's that sticker shock at the grocery store, the gas prices, that's not going to improve, especially with this Russia-Ukraine matter and the sanctions. So the approval ratings aren't going to improve. So I think you're right that they are, you know, smelling <laughs> the right ball. <laughs> and, and, you know, in politics, one thing I've learned is in politics, you, you know, you wouldn't even trust your own mother. As much as they loved Biden two years ago, they're already throwing him off the ship, it seems. And they're getting ready to find another candidate. Certainly not going to be Kamala because her approval ratings are also um, quite bad. And they're, they're looking, what can we do for 2024? They're in a really sticky spot because they don't really have anyone else with a name recognition, I don't think, that they could put forth as a replacement for Biden. Um, but I do think they're already trying to set the stage for a replacement. Do you think Trump is going to run? He seems to be gearing up for it. Absolutely, yeah. He's running. People keep telling me on Twitter every time I say that, they're like, no, he's not. He's just grifting and then he's not going to announce. Why would he be? He could easily win. Why wouldn't he want to be the president and the most powerful person in the world? Again, it's not even illogical for you to say he's just grifting. No, he, he will run. He can easily win. The, the, the numbers are there. And, you know, when people go away, I always say politics is almost like a romantic relationship. When you break up with someone, you forget the bad stuff and you start to miss them. Right. Yes. And with Trump, almost being off Twitter has almost helped him. Because in silence, the, you know, his, his antics kind of disappear from your mind. You kind of just start remembering things, kind of like the conversation we just had of, would he have handled this better? Remember how well he tried getting along with Kim Jong-un and, and, and you remember the good. So I think that will also help him greatly with the electorate. There is a lot of, do you miss me yet? That old saying in politics and possibly even buyer's remorse. Yeah. Oh. That's the word, right? Buyer's remorse. And yeah, you do have a tendency to romanticize that stuff in the past. Um, AJ, thank you for this. I really appreciate this. Great conversation. AJ Delgado is an American columnist who formerly worked for Mediate. She joined Donald Trump's presidential campaign in 2016 of September. She's a Harvard Law graduate who practiced law in New York City. Her writings have been published in the American Conservative, National Review, the Miami Herald, the Washington Post, Breitbart, the Daily Caller, and Fox News. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Franzak, back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited cosmos. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. For people who are just joining us, Erin is not necessarily feeling all that well this morning. She will be back tomorrow, all things being equal, providing she's doing better tomorrow. But nevertheless, we've still had a fantastic show. We're going to keep the show moving on. And let's get into some of our headlines before we go into the 9 o'clock hour. Or as we go into the 9 o'clock hour, to be more specific. In COVID news... Thought COVID was over with. I know everybody thought it was over with. It is not. Who would have thought, who would have thought that former U.S. President Donald Trump would convince thousands of people to get COVID-19 vaccinations? This person does. 
Well, according to new data from the new, uh, National Bureau of Economic Research, a 27-second YouTube ad ran more than 100,000 YouTube channels in the second half of October 2021, along with major media platforms like Fox News, which convinced a sizable amount of folks to get the jab, the jab, as they call it. And again, this is one of those influence things. Of course, people have an influence, especially people like Trump or Obama, these kind of larger-than-life figures with these grandiose personas. Think back for the moment with Obama and the gay marriage stuff. Joe Biden blurts out, hey, Obama is for this. Now, the reality of it is Obama had been for it even when he was in um, um, Senate Congress back in um, Chicago. And there's videos of him talking about the gay marriage stuff. Of course, when he becomes president, that becomes more ambiguous. He doesn't necessarily bring that out. Joe Biden comes out and basically releases the beans. And the perspective from the standpoint of the public shifts almost immediately with the perspective of the president shifting on that issue. It's astonishing, actually. It's almost like lemmings. And those, um, just because they like that person, their mind goes in that direction. In national news, after taking nearly 10% of Twitter stock, Elon Musk was asked by several Republicans and activists to restore the account of former U.S. President Donald Trump after Tesla and SpaceX CEO repeatedly criticized the social media giant for its biased treatment of conservative voices. Again, it's not just conservative voices. Musk, a frequent tweeter with over 80 million followers, has repeatedly questioned Twitter's commitment to free speech. On Tuesday, he was officially appointed to Twitter's board of directors. Now, this is rather interesting because the stock that Elon Musk had didn't necessarily immediately or automatically allow him to influence the business itself. They brought him onto the board. Now, yes, he has a huge amount of stock. And yes, Elon Musk has a massive presence just because of his ability to tweet and everything else. It almost was like incentivized them to basically bring him on as opposed to him being on the outskirts tweeting at the company for doing stuff he didn't necessarily like while owning 10% of that particular stock. So Elon Musk is on the board. We just had the question about what it means. And up to this point, we don't entirely know. I mean, Elon Musk has been somewhat ideologically in favor of opening the bounds of speech that are allowed on the platform. And whether that translates into direct action with Twitter allowing more voices in, being less reactive in regards to getting rid of things that it doesn't necessarily like, that are purely ideological. Um, they're not even necessarily dangerous, per se. You can call anything dangerous, whether it's true or not, is secondary to the point. We will see what effect Elon Musk has on Twitter going forward. My hope is that he widens the scale and the level of what is allowed in regards to speech. That articles like New York Post or articles from, say, like RT, or for that matter, Sputnik, or for that matter, Telesur, or even Pakistan sources aren't necessarily automatically removed for a political agenda of the organization. That's what I want. So if Elon Musk is going to do that, kudos to Elon Musk. Do I have this great belief in billionaire saving us? No, I don't. And if anything, it's more sad than anything else that Elon Musk joining in that is what people are looking forward to as a protection of free speech. Again, if we are dependent upon billionaires to protect free speech, free speech is already dead. Let's keep going. The New York Magazine reports leaders of Black Lives Matter movement secretly used six million of donations to purchase a swanky house in Southern California. Um, the more than 6,500 square feet mansion is more than a half a dozen bedrooms, six bathrooms, I'm sorry, bathrooms and bedrooms, multiple fireplaces, soundstage, a pool, bungalow, and a parking lot for more than 20 cars. BLM chapters around the country are now asking questions as to where their money is going. Yeah, that's a good and decent question to ask considering um, the purchases that are basically being made in their names. Again, I want to stress, in no way does this denigrate, undermine, subvert the movement of all of those people who actually wanted real things to take place. 
by the same token, that movement doesn't necessarily mean, or the legitimacy of that movement doesn't mean that you can't have people at the top who try to basically take advantage. Both of those things can be true, in fact, on some level. One is required for the other to exist. And in this case, in order for those people to be able to take advantage, it requires a movement and something under it for those people to take advantage of. Either way, questions are being asked of BLMs um, in regards to what are you doing with the money and all those purchases coherent in the context of trying to get something done on the political space, meaning their own political objectives getting accomplished. What does a swanky mansion with 20 cars and multiple bedrooms and multiple fireplaces and a bungalow have to do with you getting the agenda of African-Americans accomplished? Gotta answer that. Let's keep going. Russian Foreign Ministry Sergey Lavrov says the West is trying to sabotage negotiations between Russia and Ukraine by fueling the hype around the Butra provocation. Top Russian official noted that the provocation in Bucha took place just as Ukraine rolled out possible peace suggestions, including regarding the Crimea. Put a pin in that. Let's go back to that. The Russian foreign ministry has slammed the United States over its interference in the eternal affairs of Pakistan as it sought to back Prime Minister Imran Khan in a snap election scheduled to be held in three months. The Russian foreign ministry spokesperson says, quote, the United States decided to punish Imran Khan for disobedience. A group of deputies from the Prime Minister's party suddenly decided to defect to the opposition and Parliament immediately submitted the question of a vote of no confidence, unquote. Now, you can't say he's entirely wrong on that because that is basically what took place in that order. Now, whether the U.S. was intimately involved, who knows? Could they be? Yes. Would they be an incentive to be? Yes. Does it mean an actual fact? Unclear. There is an incentive for the various people in Pakistan, meaning the military and everything else that have close associations with the United States. Whether or not there was any formal contact is secondary to the point that they could see a political advantage in saying, hey, over here, we're willing to suckle on the nipple of Joe Biden to get weapons and money and all other sorts of resources that you can give us. Please, we're here. So they could be that, right? Whether that formal contact exists or not is almost secondary to the point that they know that that potential exists. Does it mean that the connections between the U.S. and the military are there? Yes, those connections are there. Is it possible that those connections have been reaching out considering Imran Khan has not necessarily been on the U.S. side on this stuff and has been more in the orbit of Moscow and Beijing? Yeah, there can be consequences for him being in that way with a military that leans closer to the United States. At this point, having a conversation with Mike Maloof earlier, we discussed it. You can definitely go back to the 7.30 hour um, and hear it. But either way, it's a very interesting thing. Pakistan is a nuclear power nation. Um, it matters in the global sense. India's ambassador to the United Nations said there should be an independent investigation into the events of the Ukrainian city of Bucha after the Ukrainian government accused Russian troops of killing civilians there. The diplomat called the reports of civilian killings in the city, quote, disturbing, unquote, which is also another reason why the Bucha stuff gets hyped up. I mean, the U.S. only has like half the world with it. I don't even know it's the whole half. And if anything, these are just basically NATO nations that are willing to shoot their populations in the face economically in order to accomplish their geopolitical objectives. Well, if you are trying to basically bring other people on with a tragedy um, and with a war crime, do it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Meaning there's all sorts of incentives built into the future stuff. Let's keep going. The aftermath of the slap heard around the world continues. Netflix and Sony have put upcoming projects with Will Smith on hold after he slapped comedian Chris Rock at the 2022 Oscars. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Smith was due to star in an upcoming Netflix movie, quote, fast and loose, unquote, but sources told the outlet that the streaming giant has set the project aside. Yeah, we're going to pause this. We're going to pause this. We're not a fan of you assaulting somebody at the Oscars. 
we are frowning upon that. Yes, we like the publicity. Yes, um, we like the fact that um, your name is being put in lights and all the other stuff. No, we don't want to work with you under those terms. Look, it's unclear whether this is a pause or whether they put the project to the side completely. The language is said they put the project aside. We'll see. In Earth and Science News, the Hubble Space Telescope has found the most distant star ever whose light needed to travel 12.9 billion years to reach Earth. According to the European Space Agency, quote, the NASA ESA Hubble Space Telescope has established an extraordinary new benchmark, detecting the light of a star that existed within the first billion years after the Big Bang, the most distant individual star ever seen. That is amazing. Three times 10 to the eighth power um, speed of light. And think about how fast light would have to travel and how long it took. Meaning, think of the item, the thing that's so big and so powerful, the scale of such a thing that could pitch light out where it's still traveling 12.9 billion years. That photon that eventually end up on our detector where we could see it and identify it. 12.9 billion years later. That is mind-blowing. That is just mind-blowing. On the business news, after more than 125 years as one of the sport's most iconic snacks, Cracker Jack is adding a new face to its roster with the introduction of Cracker Jill. Ignore the slightly racist overtones for the moment, but this is to celebrate women who break the barriers in sports. This in a statement by PepsiCo, announcing a new character from Frito-Lay. The company says, quote, Tapping into the brand's rich history with America's favorite pastime, Cracker Jill will come to life through five different representations of a series of special edition bags, which will be available at the start of the season's baseball season in professional ballparks across the country and through a donation of $5 or more to the Women's Sports Foundation, unquote. I love the idea. Cracker Jill, it is. Bring her on. Bring her on. That's awesome. And crazy news or crazy story news, it is a Guinness Book of World Record. A Texas seven-year-old boy was dubbed the youngest professional mariachi singer by Guinness World Records. Seven-year-old Mateo Lopez got to start singing along with mariachi bands at local restaurants when he was four years old, and his skills have since led to appearances on Mexico's Got Talent and Little Big Shots. Parents Alberto and Janelle Lopez took their son to Milan, Italy in February and did not tell him until arriving that the purpose of the trip was to receive a Guinness World Record certificate. Guinness said the boy officially earned the record at the age of four years old. Yeah, I have all sorts of, of, of skepticism on that one. And I'm not going to go back into it. I'll just say um, a four-year-old playing mariachi um, basically smears all of those other people who are playing mariachi for all of their lives in order to get great at it. We have singers or kids in our family at two and three years old that are pushed by their parents to sing some god-awful song that we're forced to listen to because they love Little Johnny so much and they think Little Johnny is such an athlete. Oftentimes, Little Johnny is not a great singer. Little Johnny is not a great athlete. Little Johnny is not all that attractive and everything else in the way that parents try to make him out. And your kids are never all that interesting. They're only interesting to you. Yes, that's slightly bitter. Not a big fan of kids. Either way, I'm very skeptical of Mateo, or whatever his name is, uh, being this kind of awesome mariachi fan singer. But hey, who knows? To be bluntly honest, I haven't necessarily heard him, so I don't necessarily know what his skill set is. But at four years old, I am greatly, greatly skeptical. In holiday news, we have National Sammy Test. Cats Day. We have National Student Athlete Day. We have New Beers Eve Day. No idea what that is. Day of Hope. Day of Hope. No idea what that is, but I love it. National Walking Day. And of course, today in history, in 1830, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was established. 
1896, we had the first modern Olympic Games in Athens, Greece. That is astonishingly awesome. In 1917, the United States officially enters World War I. I believe President Woodrow Wilson. And in 1968, the greatest, most iconic sci-fi film ever was introduced into theaters and the world forever from that moment on had changed. 2001 Space Odyssey was released in movie theaters. And I'm not going to go back into my conversation on this. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franz. Not going to go into the whole thing on it as I did when I first started. Yes, I geek out on stuff like this. You basically have a situation where a movie, in the same way that I would argue that Donald Trump could come out and would say, hey, get the jab. And all of these people ends up getting the jab. Or, for that matter, Obama comes out with the gay marriage stuff. And all of a sudden, the point of view on gay marriage changes instantly just because the president came on to do it. Or Bill Cosby and The Cosby Show, where you have all of these African-Americans that for the first time on television see an African-American doctor, an African-American lawyer, and a family with these awesome, awesome kids. That yeah, they have their issues and everything else because they're kids and they're human beings by the same token. The example that it set had all of these other people going to Spelman or all of these other people going to these kind of African-American black schools. It had an impact. It had an effect. What about movies and art? We talk about the Harlem Renaissance, for example, in the way that Negroes being in vogue, where all of a sudden all of this art and literature coming out where people can say, hey, these African-Americans actually think they're people just like us. I would even argue Will and Grace on some level did that, where you could see homosexual couple or at the very least. And you think to yourself, hey, they're just human beings. Well, of course, no, duh, they're human beings. But oftentimes it takes you to see that stuff in this kind of third person external way in order to believe that that can be representative of reality. It gives you a take in your head of things that wasn't necessarily there before. Space Odyssey 2001. Yes, we've had sci-fi films before. No, nothing like that. The bone being thrown up into the sky by one ape that beat the devil out of another ape being the first tool ever used, and that tool turning into a space station, this inexorable march from the standpoint of primitive to what we would consider a spacefaring civilization. Man's fate is in the stars. That was the point that the movie was making. And from the use of that first tool, it was an inexorable march. Yes, at times dark. Yes, at times the technology being used to kill and murder and slaughter. But that's not the only reason and rationale for technology. It is a choice to use technology in that way. That choice is somewhat governed by culture that those people are in, but inexorable, one step after the next, fading the stars. That movie was utterly and entirely astonishing. And it was showing this picture of humanity, giving it what we could be. Space Odyssey, 2001, phenomenal film. Definitely go check it out if you haven't seen it. And a cult classic, to put it mildly. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm typically joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be 
shy. By the way, we're going to bring, um, we're going to be taking calls. Ideally, at 945, we may take it a little bit early, depending upon um, the guests. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. One of the items that I wanted to go back to for a moment um, in headlines right here. Here we got right here. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says the West is trying to sabotage negotiations between Russia and Ukraine by fueling the hype around the Bucha provocation. The top Russian official noted that the provocation in Bucha took place just as Ukraine rolled out possible peace suggestions, including those regarding the Crimea. Now, I've made the point before that it was Ukraine that basically offered various concessions. We would not be aligned in NATO. We would be an independent nation. We would not have foreign military on our soil. If we we're going to have military operations, we will um, basically get Russia's permission to do so. And, of course, implicit conversations around this notion of Donbass and implicit conversations around the notion of Crimea. Now, I've said on more than one occasion that no real negotiations will take place until the military situation on the ground is resolved. Because once the military situation is resolved, they're trying to create the land bridge to Crimea. They're trying to isolate or at the very least have these independent republics in the Donbass. And in doing so, after which they would have that conversation. And so up to that point, not so much. If you are Ukraine and you're losing a conflict, and in losing that conflict, what you are winning is this kind of propaganda war. Well, you need to somehow find means and ability to apply pressure in any way that you can possibly apply pressure. You can't do it militarily on the ground. So you have been basically doing it with this notion of propaganda. You come up with this butcher stuff. Now, again, the position of this show is we have no idea what is taking place on the ground, even though we've given this context in regards to what we think could be the case and the incentives that are involved in the various people on the ground. You've had Elijah Magnier even make the point of saying, look, there needs to be a real and legitimate investigation on this, and that is not going to take place. And there's all sorts of things that you can find to get the truth of it that we probably will not get. But does this put pressure on Russia? Does it? And I think the answer is yes. Now, you could take a position that says this is trying to gut the ability to negotiate, but you can also take a position that this is trying to basically increase the ability for negotiation. It depends, really honestly, on how you look at it. You could say that this is so bad that we can't negotiate, or you could say that, look, we're going to continuously put pressure using this kind of propaganda stuff in order to make you look bad in the eyes in order to try to push you to have negotiations. It really, it really does depend on how the individuals are involved or looking at it. So this is not necessarily something that cuts one way in regards to what they're trying to accomplish. Russia could be right, and the U.S. could be trying to gut negotiations, or in this case, they could be wrong, and this is just a propagandistic tool to try to put more pressure on those negotiations. It is unclear. A lot of the stuff that has taken place is unclear. But look, we have our guest on, so let's go to our guest. Joining us. Uh, yes, I think we have our guest on. Yes, we have our guest. So joining us is Horace Cunningham. Horace Cunningham is a Jamaican-American. I'm sorry. Uh, we're missing the bio for Horace. Um, Horace, welcome to the show. We're going to get your bio. I'm really sorry about this. But welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay. Excellent. Um, producers, can you guys give me Horace bio? Because under normal circumstances, we like to introduce the guests with name and everything else. But Horace, we're bringing you on to have a conversation about the Jamaican prime minister basically saying they want to be an independent republic. And, you know, I guess the catch with this is there was, people were surprised by this. That basically Jamaica saying, look, we want it to go it alone. I mean, even in the document itself, it says we're moving on, he said. We intend to fulfill the true ambitions and destiny as an independent, developed, prosperous 
country. And this was Jamaican Prime Minister Andrew Holness, who was basically having the conversation with Prince Williams and Kate that the Caribbean island intends to be fully independent. Um, and Britain didn't expect this announcement. So why is this taking place? Why are they basically saying they want to be an independent nation after all of these years? What is the motivation for this? What is the impetus behind this um, acknowledgement? Okay, um, in Jamaica, all right, we are, uh, it's a ceremonial um, head. The, 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 the queen is a ceremonial head of Jamaica. Um, over the past several, uh, for the last few decades since independence, um, we haven't really seen much in terms of contributions from the UK. Um, first of all, it requires um, a visa for entry into the UK, and it's a visa that requires, um, trust me, you have to do a lot in order to actually get that visa to actually visit the UK, which, as you know, um, rules Jamaica uh, ceremonially. So um, there's a there's a rise in, in local nationalistic fervor, and this is the same that happened in Barbados, where Barbados moved to being a republic. So Jamaica is trying to really now catch up with Barbados in terms of getting rid of a ceremonial head of, head of state, installing a local head of state in, term, in the form of a president. So we get rid of the governor general. So really, as I said, it's mainly about trying to forge a path where we are completely rid of the, the, the monarchy, because to tell the truth, the monarchy doesn't really contribute much to Jamaica overall. So it's merely a ceremonial post that they they deposit, and when they have a when you have a um a ceremonial head of state being the queen, for example, you have a governor general as the actual head of state. Very interesting. So that is how it is actually organized. Yeah. Oh, that is fascinating. Okay, well, two things. Horace Cunningham is a writer and journalist for C Media Jamaica, who is focused on international relations and regional security concerns. He is also a tech enthusiast, journalist, and UAV developer. Definitely wanted to get that in before we um, continue. Apologize for not having that when we first started. Um, that is fascinating. So wait, so any, okay. I never thought, I thought the queen was a figurehead. And I thought that, like you said, she didn't really contribute to anything for the guards of the various governments or anything else. But I didn't realize that there was, there's a governor general that's over every what, colony or every, not even colony, but every um, country that the queen basically considers part of the territory. What is the role of the governor general? And within the context of a government at the at Europe or the UK is over. Okay, the governor general is purely ceremonial, meaning he or she doesn't have any sort of real um, power in Jamaica. For example, the governor general appoints the prime minister, but the governor general appointment of a prime minister is based on the vote of the Jamaican people. So it's not like he has. It's the NC in terms of what goes on and, and who is going to become the political head of the country. So the governor general is a figurehead. And to get rid of the governor general and, and to, in, to put in place a, um, a president, there will not be any major upheaval in terms of how the country is run because governor general is only ceremonial. Has it been and any... of course, the governor general represents the queen. Well, I was going to say, has there been any situation where the governor general disagreed with the choices in regards to prime minister? No, the governor general tends to do everything. Every single thing done by the gen governor general is based on the advice of the prime minister. So, for example, the governor the governor general dissolves parliament. It's based on the advice of the prime minister, based on the the advice of the constitution. So, the governor general himself has no real power in terms of what happens locally politically. Um, but what the governor general does is he kind of signifies. He signifies the the actual power of the monarchy. So he's there 
basically act as a sort of I am here, I am still here. You are still a part of my uh, my 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 commonwealth. You're still a part of my ancient empire. So that is what the, gov the governor general actually does, and he's just a representative. In terms of actual power locally, he has really none. So basically, nothing is adversely affected short of the symbolic power of the UK over Jamaica with the removal. Exactly. I, I see, I see. And of course, no country is going to want this kind of paternalistic, you know, we're still in charge of you, even though we're not in charge of you stuff, um, symbolized by this particular post in position. What would need to happen in order to get rid of that position and then become a, a, a basically elected president? Okay, um, I'm not aware of the exact processes, but I think Jamaica will follow the same part of Barbados where Certain changes are made in the constitution. Um, the, the different bodies of parliament come together and agree on how exactly or what role a president would actually have in Jamaica. Whether it's just the same ceremonial um, duties that the governor general has, or if the president himself or herself will have more control over what is actually being decided on in the country. So they will have to go about um, their different processes to figure out all of that, and then know they can actually say, okay, cool, let's have a, a president replace the governor general. Also, uh, whether the governor general will be appointed by the parliament or the governor general will be appointed by a vote, or a separate vote, as opposed to just voting for the prime minister. So that is another thing. They will need to figure out all of that before they can actually make any sort of move. But currently, the governor general is appointed, I think he's appointed um, directly by the the the, 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 the political system locally. I'm not exactly sure of the process either mm -hmm. because we don't we haven't had much governor generals over the last um what about 15, 20 years. I suspect is what you said. They will probably have to change the constitution. The change in the constitution almost by definition will provoke a, you know adjust, the adjustment per se. Um something else basically took place. Kamala Harris visited Jamaica recently. Um now it, I did not know that Kamala Harris grew up in Jamaica. Um, but she says, as a point of privilege, um, personal privilege, I grew up to, I grew up going to Jamaica and my family, half of my family is from St. Anne Parish in Jamaica, as I know I've shared that history with millions of Americans who have their roots in generations in Jamaica. And of course, she's basically using the heritage as a way of saying, hey, I have this kind of tie um, to the country. Um, but basically, they're giving, what, $20 million that they're pledging in, I guess, some kind of assistance um, to Jamaica in this case. What is the relationship? This is right here. To that end, the U.S. and I are announcing today we'll be investing $20 million to assist in the strengthening and the expansion of Jamaica's commerce in a way that we fully intend will have an impact on strengthening the economy of Jamaica and drive economic growth. Okay. <laughs> what is going on? What does that mean um, in real physical matter, reality, practical terms? Okay, let me make this very clear. That is really to counter China. <laughs> Is, is that what it is, basically? Oh, so China has been making inroads in Jamaica, basically. Not, not just inroads and roads literally, because the majority of Jamaican roads right now are actually built by the Chinese. The, the development of the local transport infrastructure would be nowhere near what it is right now without the Chinese. And this says a lot about our past relationship with the U.S. and our U.S. actually what the U.S. actually contributed to the country up to this point. So we are looking at a case where our longest highway was built by the Chinese. All major roads right now are being refurbished by the Chinese. The first set of east to, from, from, from the capital, Kingston, to the eastern part of the country, which that, that road was notorious. It was almost like a riverbed. That road is now 
being developed by the Chinese. Chinese has invested significant amounts of money in local infrastructure, in, 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 in buildings in the capital and such. So what U.S. is trying to do now is to counter that sort of influence. But 20 million U.S. dollars is nothing really compared to what the Chinese have actually offered. I don't know if you can recall, there have been several attempts by the the, 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 the local U.S. Um, ambassador, ambassador to, to, to Jamaica, to try and coerce Jamaica away from China, um, saying that the Chinese should not be trusted, that the Chinese um, might be spying, that we shouldn't take too much size with the Chinese. So this sort of move by Kamala is really just to sort of say, hey, we are here still do not give everything to the Chinese. Just remember with your big brother is here watching you. That is really it. And I can tell you, um, that 20 million will will be very different from, from what the Chinese actually contributed in terms of money. I can tell you, while the Chinese, you can literally see the Chinese contribution in terms of infrastructure development, it would be hard pressed to see where that 20 million goes. And I know, I know this is what it has been like before the Chinese came to Jamaica. And it's going to be the same thing. Oh, you're trying to say he's going to pocket that money? Not really, but in, in terms of tangible, um, tangible um, developments that we can actually put up. For example, Chinese invest $50 million. They will tell you $50 million US dollars invested in the highway from the North Coast to the South Coast. And you literally see the development. That $20 million were, was actually announced without any clear indication of what exactly they spent on. And that is the main problem. I see. Like on the highways, you can say, China built this. But from the standpoint of that money, it's like we have no idea where that money went. And, and I, I saw 20 million. I was like, they think Jamaica is a cheap date. <laughs> like $20 million is nothing. Like, what do they expect? Like, Jamaica's like, hey, thank you for the $20 million. And this is going to go where? Like, it doesn't. I just thought, I was like, when I first saw the story, I was like, is it 20 million or 20 billion? It's like, no, 20 million. Okay, I don't know what they expect to get for $20 million. U.S. lacks the capital of China, and that is a problem. They can't compete with China. They can't compete with China in the Caribbean. They can't compete with China in the Latin American region, which is a South America. So they're actually just there. Okay, we have a little spirit change. Let us give it a spirit change reminder that we're actually here. That's the reason why I do not take much of it, because... It is more of saying, okay, remember who you are, you, you should be aligned with. Remember that we are here watching you. That's what a $20 million is about. And um, I, I, as I said, I don't see where, I don't know where that money will be spent, but you'll be hard-pressed to find actual developments coming from that money. I can tell you that. I'm curious, the people on the ground, do they, when I was in Africa, my, I, we, my ex and I visited, I believe it was Kenya. We also visited Cairo. But in Nairobi, it was very clear. The Chinese presence, like it, it uh, uh, extremely clear, like blisteringly clear. They, China had various casinos that were there. You had articles written. Um, they were talking about Chinese influence in that particular country. You could see a large contingent of people from Asia or from China um, in the country. Is it like that in Jamaica where they full well understand that this kind of new development and everything is basically being built with assistance from China? I guess I'm trying to understand how ever present is the Chinese image in Jamaica, is it similar to this kind of um, image in um, Africa? I'm just curious. Okay, uh, it's it's complicated because Jamaicans, even while getting support from the Chinese, are not that welcoming. I can tell you. I think it's the same for some African countries. Um, we have a Chinese integrated in our society from over well over 100 years, about 150 years, when most came as indentured servants. Then we had a lot of Chinese coming in the 
in the, the late nine, uh, 1900s where they, they set up a lot of supermarkets, wholesales, those sort, sort of um, um, business establishments. But Jamaicans are a bit standoffish with the Chinese because they view them as coming here to take over, and that is a big problem. And that is one of the things that U.S. is actually trying to play on. You will see it in a lot of African countries as well, where they believe that the Chinese actually come to take the resources. So it's very similar to that in Jamaica. There's always some sort of suspicion in terms of what the Chinese are doing, in terms of what they're actually coming to do. Um, regardless of how much development you see, Jamaicans tend to like um, things coming from U.S. and Europe on a lesser extent. So there will always be that bias um, against the Chinese regardless of what the Chinese does. Because there's, there's a level of suspicion that was harbored um, in, the, the cult, in the culture of the country, um, dating back, as, back when the Chinese um, started coming as indentured um, workers. So that is, it's a very complicated... Um, relationship. Very, very complicated sort of relationship. It, it has been like that for well before the major investments and, and, and developments from China, back when only supermarkets and wholesales were Chinese owned, before we had the, 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 the harbor being developed by China, uh, before we had the major road improvement works by China. There's always a bit of suspicion that you're coming to take the money and then bring it back home. So it, it's very complicated. It's a very, very complicated uh, relationship. That's very interesting. Wow. Because, you know, even the article in Kenya. Their argument was that the U.S. basically sold them out and gave them to China or left them for China. As, as you're reading it, like, what do you mean they left you for China? Like, it's just very weird. Like, that, like you say, I guess it's that complicated relationship playing out. Do you think that the experience with, let's say, either Jamaica or for that matter, even Africa with the West in regards to the way they had slaves and those type of things? Is it something that is built into that where it's almost like this kind of cultural memory of exploitation? And here you have this new group that's coming in and the thought is, OK. Yeah, I know you guys are saying win-win relationship, but at the end of the day, we believe that it's going to be exploited just like the previous people were here. Is it that? Where it's like the previous experiences creating a context for going forward? Even that in itself is very complicated because and let me I can be very um, frank. Of course. Yeah, of course. Jamaicans, <laughs> a lot of Caribbean countries, they view Europeans and Americans as being somewhat um, superior to other persons who would come and actually provide. Are you serious? Really? Now, why? I can tell you. And it's, it's, it's very deeply embedded in, in, in our culture, and it's merely coming back from slavery. I can tell you. It, all right, Jamaica, Jamaica is a colorist society. Um, the lighter your skin complexion, the more um, success you're expected to have. Similar in the and U.S. it's deeply ingrained in the society. I was just saying it's similar in the U.S. I mean, that was one of those motifs that was showing itself in the United States, also in the black community. But please continue. Exactly. So that in itself, when people see Americans and and, um, and Europeans come to Jamaica or come to Jamaica to set up um, businesses, come to Jamaica to set up um, any, to, to do any sort of development, um, people are more welcoming of them because they're used to them being the head and a lot of persons, even per, even when it comes to actual um, breaking away from the queen, a lot of older persons, persons who are now in their 60s, 70s, tell you that they kind of prefer when we were directly run by a British because they believe that the British did a better job overall. And it's mainly because of that um, overseeing, um, or overseeing um, sort of thing where Europeans would run their affairs and they believe that Europeans actually do better than others and even do better than our current um, 
set of administrations. So it is very deeply ingrained, and that's one of the reasons why people are, you know, suspicion of Asians, whether you're Japanese, Chinese, whatever, there's this deep suspicion that they're coming from far away, and um, they are coming to take this, and they're coming to take that while the, the Europeans, the Americans nurture um, development and grow locally. So trust me, it's cultural, and that's one of the reasons why we have it like this. And it's it's not it's not backed by any sort of um, empirical evidence, but it's cultural. It's deeply cultural. You cannot look at it and put your finger on exactly what's going on. It's just how it is with people. And um, people view us as a lighter skin com- complexion. You are, but call it twenty years ago. It would be easier for you to get certain jobs, um, to reach certain places, to be recognized in certain ways if you have a lighter skin complexion. Twenty thirty, the further back you goes, the actual. Um, greater this become. Um, I remember, I think back in the 80s, in order to become a flight attendant, you had to be a certain complexion, you had to have a certain type of hair. And it's, it's deeply ingrained in the population. So, and it's not something I see um, changing anytime soon. Wow. Wow. Uh, like I said, I mean, I knew there was an issue in the U.S. Um, among African-Americans where it's like the lighter you are, the better you were considered for some particular reason. And like you said, this it's, I don't know if it's just because you know, this notion of um, a conqueror's mentality of sorts, like the people who are basically have status in that society were lighter. And because those are the people that had status in the society, you get just accustomed to the fact that they're in charge. And so lighter becomes better. However, that basically works out um, for. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't realize that that was one of those strains that was also running through um, Jamaica. That is fascinating. So them being able to push off the queen thing is somewhat of a big deal um, in general. I mean, just we don't want this paternalistic relationship basically needs to end. And that's, you know, on some level that, by the way, is there any, what was the stewardship of Britain as it ran Jamaica? Meaning, is there any reality to that? I mean, I know for Kenya, the Brits ran it into the ground. It was utterly horrendous. I mean, the things that the Brits were doing, like they were even creating separations where people couldn't, let's say, like drink coffee or stuff like that. I mean, it was insane the way they were using the community where they were pit one side against the other in order to create this kind of, let's say, lock on British power. Um, in regards to the country. How did they do Jamaica? I mean, was Jamaica ran under similar terms? Uh, in Kenya, um, I, you, you should look at African countries. Over African countries, um, countries in, 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 in Southeast Asia, um, how the European powers, they, they would take one ethnic group and then basically turn that was normally a minority. They would take a minority and then put a minority in power, a minority run. And when they leave now, that minority will have access to most of the wealth, most of the military resources, those sort of things. In Jamaica, it was different because Jamaica is just basically um, a group of people coming from different different parts of Africa, um, Asia, and, and those locations. So it was very different. Uh, Jamaica wasn't really... Jamaica was run quite well. I can tell you that. Um, Jamaica was run quite well. Um, Jamaica had a lot of resources, um, but also, as I said, we didn't have that sort of tribalistic um, trait um, back in the days when, when, when they were actually running the country. And that's me, like I said, because most of us actually came from different, different ethnic groups. Um, I think the only serious wars that we had, our local conflicts we had with, with the British, were when um, we had homogenous groups where could actually identify their past roots, um, the Maroons, um, well, the different Maroon Wars, um, the, the, the conflict with Sam Sharp. So once you have a group where 
persons can actually identify as a group coming from a single homogenous um, society or whatever society, whatever tribal group in, in Africa, then that's where you have conflict. So it was very difficult for Britain to take a set amount of individuals and say, okay, cool, um, you are going to become the head. The only way, the only place we actually um, see something like that happen is with the color. As I said, the, the color determines where you are. You could be mixed with... Um, so, for example, Middle Eastern, which a lot of Middle Eastern people um, actually reside in Jamaica. Syrian, you mix with Syrian, you have a lighter complexion. Um, you mix with certain forms, certain Indian groups. You mix with um, Europeans. You tend to get um, preferred treatment overall in in um in the in the colonial um society. But it wasn't as in green, as with Kenya and other African countries, with India, and with, with those um, Southeast Asian countries run by the Europeans. So it was very different. So we didn't really experience a sort of level of, of exploitation um, locally from the British. So we we're one of the, the few lucky ones. Very interesting. Horace, we got to get you back. I, I, I'm enamored by this conversation. Um, no, that's fascinating, man. Horace Cunningham, he's a writer, journalist with C Media Jamaica is focused on international relations and regional security concerns. He's also a tech enthusiast, journalist, and a UAV developer. That is fantastic. Um, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak, we're going to take your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. We already have two on the line, but we'll be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I am typically joined by my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. This is the end portion of the show, The Wrap. And we already have two callers. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. We have Malik in D.C. What's going on, my man? How's it going this morning? Hey. How's it going, man? I'm pretty good, pretty good. Uh, you know what? Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I was hoping to, to get to talk to your guests. Sorry, I, I missed them there. I had a questions for them. Oh, what did you want to ask? I mean, worst come to worst, we can always send them a message. Um, but what was the topic? What was, what was the thing you wanted to bring up? Uh, well, one of them was, uh, I'm, you know, I've, I've spent, you know, I haven't been to Jamaica, but I've, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in the Caribbean in the past 15 years or so. So I'm, I'm aware of the, the Chinese presence in the Caribbean. And, and I, I was, you know, that was, that was a great, to hear more about that is a, is, was a great aspect of the interview. Uh, what I wanted to ask him about was his feelings on uh, the history of the role the intelligence community, the American intelligence community in Jamaica, uh, in thwarting uh, leftist political movements. There, there, there's quite a history there. And, and, but large, and largely, uh, the CIA has worked through the local police forces there, which are, are and he, I'm sure he would agree that they're uh, highly corrupt. And I, and I also wanted to get, get his, uh, his view on the, the future of, you know, not just uh, from a, a pan-Africanist view, but uh, from an internationalist view, kind of overcoming a lot of those. He's talked about the caste system and so on and so forth, and you know the colonial mentalities and and how they you know obviously um, play a role and and progressive and, and you know the progress thwarting 
progressive thinking in in Jamaica and throughout the Caribbean. And you know, and and I wanted to you know throw this out there, man. The Indian community on Twitter, when the Will Smith thing happened, they immediately analyzed that as as a caste issue. Really? Well, because it's what one African American slapping another African American. You know, what's his name made that point too? Yeah, one. Yeah, one. Of, I mean, I can't think of his name. The one who's in the sports thing. He made that point too. He was like, you know, the perspective of African Americans that have basically been um, fomented in this society, where you have one group that is basically, you know, in a lower caste system over the course of the system. Even though we wouldn't necessarily call it that way in the country, they don't like to talk about it that way. But you basically have one black person slapping another black person on national television. <laughs> that looks bad, right? Even in a racial thing, that looks bad. And so you were saying the Indian community looked at it as, okay, this is a lower caste, basically, you know, wow. Right, this, this, right. this was Will Smith of, uh, you know, um, he's, he's he, as far as a black man is concerned, he's reached the pinnacle of, you know, of, of Hollywood. And, and Chris Rock, I mean, obviously, you know, pretty, you know, rich and has been around for uh, uh, quite a while, but still not of that status. Uh, and, and one could make the argument that, you know, Will Smith fits the complexion to pay Hollywood's bills. And, you know, uh, you know, so uh, he can get away with, and it appeared to me that he felt like he could get away with slapping Chris Rock without, you know, much of uh, people talking about the smug look on his face. By the way, on national television. Like, that's the astonishing part, right? This is not an alley. Right? This is, like, I've heard situations where a comedian get, like, jacked up behind the scenes or like on set, like for saying, for making a joke or something like that. Will Smith felt like he had all the right in the world to go on national television at the pinnacle of national television on the Oscars and slap, physically assault another person for making a joke about his wife. And I suspect, like I said, he's overly sensitive about it because somebody's diddling his wife. As a man, he's probably bothered by it. And so he's taking this out on somebody else. Yeah, that's problematic. I, that's, I, I hadn't heard it put in the cast system thing before, but Hey, it does, you know, an argument can be made, right? Um, Malik, thanks, man. I appreciate this call. And next time we bring him on, we'll try to at least save time for callers where we can kind of bring him on so he can have a conversation with callers. I enjoyed that conversation. And I didn't, like, it's, it's interesting to hear how some of the strains um, are similar in regards to the black community in the United States or for that matter in Jamaica. It's just fascinating. Let's go to the next caller. We have Tarif from New Orleans. Tarif, what's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. Thank you for taking my call, Jamal. I got four, four comments. Go for it. Uh, that's if I can get to them. First, I'd like to say free journal science. And also, i like to add what I say Monday. <laughs> when I go to my doctor apartment, April the 18th at the VA in New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm being as quiet as a mouse, and I'm going to tell people yes, sir, no, sir. And also, I'm letting everybody know I do not do drugs, all right? I just have to throw that out there for legal reasons. Okay. I don't do drugs. I'm not a pill popper. But first comment, okay, is reports that two more helicopters with the Murapool. Right. They were trying to pull their people out and basically Russia shot them down. Russia shot them down. So the speculation is they might have some NATO foreign mercenaries there. Well, we don't know that. We don't know that. I mean, uh, like, the fact of the matter is Murapool looks like it's about to fall. And it seems that they are storming the Azov battalions, I guess the, the main thing or the main content of the Azov battalions um, lo location. And so I don't know what NATO would do in that situation. I mean, I get they want to like bleed Russia using Ukrainians to do it. I get that part. They don't even get the proxy war part. But would they take the 
potential of getting involved in a conflict where if indeed they were caught as NATO nations, the ramifications would be extraordinary. And would they do that in an area like Maripol that seems it's on the verge of falling? I'm skeptical of that, um, Tarif. But keep going, keep going. I mean, I could be wrong, right? To go along with that, um, um, Alice Christopher said that if they are captured, in the, uh, like Germans and Poland and people like in um, Europe find out, then they might lose support for war on Russia. You know what I'm saying? So All hell would break loose if that was the case. Hell break loose. Maricom might actually lose to Le Pen. So it might be seriously huge in that case. My second comment, okay, the um, the phase dealing with the Russia, of how they moving to the Donbass region, come to find out the ride, Russia was having so much problems in cities. Anytime you, you, you know, a large army going to a city, they have problems. Uh, people can hide behind buildings, things, and then. Well, that's why they didn't want to attack Kiev, right? I mean, that's why they didn't like uh, like siege Kiev in the way that the U.S. was like, oh, they just wanted to take Kiev. That was never really the point. I mean, like t- attacking cities. To your point, is problematic, in general, right? But please keep going, keep going. Yeah. So right now they're going to the bad reason, and it, they're going to encircle the um, Ukrainian army. And what's going to happen is that's his plane, that's his open fields, open plane, and then force. They could be easily spotted, and that's when the Russians going to bring in the heavy artillery and start dropping two thousand pound bombs on them. And you're going to see massive casualties goes up for the Ukraine and casualties go down for the, the Russian soldiers, and it's going to be a decisive uh, victory for the Russia. That's my second comment. My, th- uh, my, uh, uh, um, my other comment is dealing with the Twitter takeover. Oh, by Elon Musk. Well, he's not really taking it over. I know what you mean, though. Elon Musk is joining Twitter. It feels that way. I'm saying he's not. Oh, I'm, I'm, well, let me rephrase. It feels that way. So I feel you. <laughs> 9.2%, right? Right, right. So it's rumored that Peter, Peter Thiel is helping him out and other people. And it's rumored also that he's going to start a purge of Twitter, getting rid of people. And they're going to change things now because he took off, you know. But he doesn't, believe it or not, Elon Musk, that's not the type of stock, though, that gives him power. They just bought him on the board. Like, meaning the type of stock that he bought didn't necessarily give Elon Musk the ability to basically um, change events and everything else. They bought him onto the board because I suspect he's Elon Musk, the world's richest man. And it would be very weird for him to have that much stock, but not have any say-so in Twitter, if that makes sense. Like, he'll, yeah, he'll be on the outskirts basically attacking the company that he has 10% stock in. It just, it gets weird. So they bought him onto the board. What do you think it means that they bought him on? Do you think it's going to be more free speech zone? Do you think they're going to purge various people who are working there? Like, what do you think Musk, what effect do you think Musk is going to have on Twitter from your standpoint? We're going to see in the next coming months because, I mean, it's rumors circulating that it's going to be a purge of certain people since he got 9.2% of the stock. We'll see. I hope he do purge some people and, and put people back on the platforms that lost their spot, like Julian Sides. Julian Sides was the first person they purged. Most people don't forgot about that. Really? I didn't know that. Alex Jones. Yeah, he was the first person purged. Alex Jones. Then other people. Um, my other two comments. Okay, of course, Biden blocked the, uh, the uh, Russian debt payments, which will, in, in the future, weaken the U.S. dollar once people start taking their money out of course. the country and going to the Yan, the R&B, China, or maybe somewhere like in Russia. The last comment dealing with the truck and fuel problems. Because all this going on and Russia might start asking for rubles and 
Earl, which they have yet to ask for Rubus Earl yet. Right. They haven't pushed it. I mean, they basically say it's a breach of contract, but they haven't shut off the gas or anything like that. But once they start happening and the price of fuel hit $180 to $200 a gallon, I mean, excuse me, a um, barrel, trucking companies is going to start ha- going in a deficit. They're going to start losing and they're going to start shutting down. And we're going to have a serious supply supply train effect that's going to take place and it's going to cause problems in this country. Tarif, I am glad you're aware of that. It doesn't necessarily seem that our media, or for that matter, the political situation is paying attention to it. But So we're going to hit it and we're going to see how we deal with it. Tarif, thanks, my man. I appreciate it. Daniel, San Antonio. What's going on, Daniel? Oh, hi there. Um, I wanted to talk about Elon Musk's uh, buying in. Yeah, go for it. And what you don't hear on the news, More Perfect Union is a news organization started by a former Bernie guy that talks about labor relations and unions. Apparently, before this buy-in, Elon Musk was complaining about the UAE trying to um, unionize his uh, car plants. But anyway, this news organization has been reporting about racism, open racism at his California car plant. And I guarantee you that, (laughs) yeah, he might be saying that, oh, I'm a free speech guy, but I think in reality, he's just trying to prevent what everyone else is trying to prevent, which is the the big union movement that's starting. Well, we're going to see, right? I mean, we'll see if, because my thing is, if we're dependent upon a billionaire to save free speech, we've already lost it. A billionaire's whims can go any way, and it's probably going to go more so in his own direction. Don't get me wrong. He may have an ideological bias against, I mean, for X or for Y, but the ideological bias is always going to be run, run up against his own self-interest. So we'll see what he does with it, right? I mean, like, just because he bought Twitter and just because he may be into free speech doesn't necessarily mean that he wants a union. Um, <laughs> if that makes sense, it doesn't mean he's a lefty. It just means that in this very specific case, he has an ideological disposition. Um, but look, we have one more caller. Daniel, thank you. Skip, 30 seconds. What's going on, Skip? I'm wondering about, um, so I really miss Shane, and I, I've even called you and um, Baron and told you how much I love y'all, but um, I don't necessarily know why he left. I have my own suspicions, but is it possible that you guys would just give him a call and have him on as a guest? It would be so cool to get his take on all this stuff in the last few weeks. Mm, maybe. Uh, maybe. I mean, there would have to be a reason and justification in order to talk to him, and it would have to pertain to specific topics. Um, so if it was a topic that he was in, yes. Under normal circumstances, just randomly for a random topic, probably no. Um, but look, hey, I'll give him a heads up that you called an axe about him. Um, and definitely. So Skip, thank you, my man. But look, we've come to the end of the show. I want to thank all of you. I want to thank my producers that overtime today. I want to thank um, our engineers. I want to thank um, all of you. Um, you know, this is Fault Lines. Thomas, my lovely host, Franzak, will be here tomorrow. And I wish all of you a phenomenal, awesome, great, spectacularly phenomenal day. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Y'all have a good one and have an awesome day. Fault lines.